Hey, everybody, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, part of the Morbidly Beautiful Cast Network. I am your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, as always, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. So excited to talk about this movie. This is one of my lifelong loves, so I'm, I'm really, really excited about this one. This is going to be a fun one to talk about tonight. Um, definitely an intimidating one. I think I've rewatched it about three times this week, as well as pretty much like any source I could get my hands on while I'm preparing for it. So um, it's a big one. We are starting our dive into the Alien franchise. We're going to cover uh, the six core films of that series, starting with 1979 and Ridley Scott's Alien. And um, this is too big of an undertaking for us to do on our own. So we have a special guest tonight um, from Daily Dead, Dread Central, and many other um, writing platforms. We are joined by Lindsay Travis. Hello, I'm really excited about this. I am excited to have you. I've read your work for a long time and we're one of our mutual friends, Becky Sayers, um, recommended you to come on with us. I'm like, that makes too much sense, let's do it. Yeah, I was so flattered and then very proud of the brand. I was like, yes, yes, I can talk about Alien for Excellent. hours. So yeah, very hyped. Well, good. We're going to hold you to that tonight. So, um, <laughs> absolutely no bathroom breaks. Um, we're going to her do all the work. Just, yeah. <laughs> we're going to go until the shelter in place order is going. This is, this is actually no a, 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 a filibuster telethon now is what we're going to do <laughs> tonight. So... So, Lindsay, what was it about the series uh, that drew you into it to begin with? Like, what makes you say, like, I know I can talk? Ooh, very good question. I think, I mean, I obviously, I didn't see it, you know, when it came out in 79. Uh, I saw it much later. Um, and I think by that point, there were, there were sequels. So there was already kind of an expanded universe happening. And I'm somewhat of a purist and with like a lot of movies, specifically horror, which uh, tends to get a lot of sequels, I always kind of see movies, um, the first one in two ways. And I really think Alien is a really good example of that. Another one being Friday the 13th, where I look at like Friday the 13th part one and Alien on their own are one complete story. And then their expanded universes just completely change them. So I love Alien for being just a really awesome, scary science fiction movie but also being able to watch it as one thing and then also watch you know aliens and the the next few and all the whole expanded universe in two different ways that's a big part yeah it's such a massive universe and this movie is really like the branching off points for so many different ways that a series can go i mean you have its follow-up in aliens which is more of a really fun kind of action movie than it is a horror movie um you have like your monster mash team up with like aliens versus predator in those two films and then you have ridley scott circling back to it almost um four decades later and it becomes this really contemplative series uh franchise on and ask questions about where do we come from and where do we go when we die and it's a really like when i rewatched alien um again on alien day i immediately put in prometheus like i didn't follow up Mm -hmm. with aliens i'm like it made me want to go back and watch prometheus and it's fascinating watching the watching those two movies back to i love that movie like Mm -hmm. like i will go to bat for prometheus till i die same and i'm just so happy to hear you say that Good, because I think we need a guest for that one, too. So. Right, right. Well, well, I am available to yell about Prometheus. Um, 
<laughs> so alien, I, alien's interesting because, like, for me personally, I enjoy it in two different ways. I enjoy it for you know discovering it as a kid, and as a kid, like I was kind of that A twenty four kid before A twenty four existed. Like I, my friends thought I was like the most losery person around because I wanted to watch the kind of slow burn movies. Aliens, it was always just okay for me, mm-hmm. but Alien was always like even from an early age that was just the movie for me it's scary as hell and you know and i'm, I'm 39 now and it still scares the living shit out of me i watched uh-huh. it a week ago and it's a terrifying movie so i mean there's that and there's all these really deep like philosophical and some really good thematical stuff to it but also on just kind of a popcorn level like my son his favorite movie in the series is predator mine like one of mine's alien so it's kind of cool that to talk to my son and be like hey you know, at some point we're going to meet up, buddy. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it's, it's interesting. Like it's just such a good series. And this first movie is just, I mean, you know, classic obviously, but I, I think sometimes people don't understand how fucking amazing this movie is. A hundred percent agree. No, a hundred percent agree. And I think a lot of that comes from the way it sets about its world building in such a way that it shows you these things that it never touches upon again. They're just, it presents mm-hmm. them. And then it moves on from there, but it presents this really fully developed and realized fantasy overall before grounding itself. So before we talk about the movie in earnest, there's like one thing I do want to say, um, and I'm going to borrow from Dan O'Bannon here. So when we talk about the Alien movies and we talk about the series as a whole, um, I'm going to definitely steal this thought from O'Bannon, who famously said, I didn't steal from anyone. I stole from everyone when it came to making, writing the Alien film. Um, he wore all of his influences right on his sleeve. And in the interest of being fair, I just want to say like where we're pulling or I'm pulling my sources from when I talk about some of the things I'm going to say tonight is uh, from books like Ian Nathan's comprehensive behind the scenes book, Alien Vault, um, last year's documentary, uh, Memory, The Origins of Alien from Alexandra O'Philippe, and The Beast Within documentary is part of the um, four-film box set that was released a few years ago from, I'm going to mispronounce, the Charles uh, de la, la Zarica. Not even close, but good enough for uh, government. So those are the sources I'm pulling from right now, the points are making here tonight. Um, also, so, uh, hmm? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, I'm sorry. Uh, also, really quickly, uh, you know, scheduling gets in, in the way sometimes and sometimes guests, you know, that want to be a part of the show don't end up being because of scheduling. But as of right now, uh, De La Zarica is really excited to come on the show during the series to talk about, like, basically Aliens, Blade Runner, Twin Peaks and everything he's had a part of as far as special features. So, Beautiful. listeners, if, you, if you're excited about that, that is planned. So... Look forward to us not following through on that, everybody. (laughs) No, we will definitely do our best to make that happen. Um, So where do we want to start, folks? Uh, Well, I think O'Bannon's the way to go. I mean, it's 100% because of him, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So he's an interesting dude. I mean, he's this guy who came out through the 60s and 70s. I love the description of him um, from his wife where she he says, like, he couldn't even be an iconoclast because he was just so weird and out there that he just lived to piss people off. You know, it shows. It shows everything from, like, the Carpenter feud to many things through the years. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a very problematic person. I mean, even Return of the Living Dead, if you watch that documentary about that, 
you know, I, I think it was Beverly Randolph that said that she went to basically audition for O'Bannon and he had like porn playing on the TV and like guns on the, on the coffee table. So nice. He was a fun guy. So the, um, okay, oh, definitely was a fun guy. Um, <laughs> I definitely would hang with him. Um, you know, the seeds of alien come from a weird science tale got, called the seeds of Jupiter. It's an eight page comic. And you have this, group of naval officers that find these alien seeds. One of the men eats the seeds, gets slapped on the back, and soon finds himself sick. Um, it's not too long before this kind of octopus-looking alien bursts out of the man's stomach. The creature then scurries off into the ocean, um, and the Navy eventually kills the creature by not allowing it to kind of rehydrate itself, only to find out at the end of the comic that like all the other seeds have been chucked into the ocean. Dun, dun, dun. You're going to have like more alien octopi coming out later on. Is octopi the correct? I think it's so. Octopi. I think we're right. Yeah, I think so. So, um, but there's also like the, the shades of Lovecraft. Um, like Jerry, like you mentioned, Dark Star. It is basically the comic version of Alien, a student <laughs> film he made with Carpenter. Yeah, so, that's, that's, yeah, that's always where I go. As soon as I start to think of like the O'Bannon vision, I immediately just think of the whole Dark Star thing. Which is great. <laughs> like that movie, it's so funny. And it's weird to think that like John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon made that. Like, yeah. I, like even my son, I showed it to him a while back and he was like, wait, dad, is that alien a beach ball? And I was just like, yes, yeah, son, it is. Like it is. they, <laughs> it's, yes. it's a literal beach ball as they. <laughs> yes, two genre greats made the proto-alien <laughs> and the ball. alien was a beach ball. <laughs> In full disclosure, I have never seen Dark oh, Star. I've only seen Great clips score. of it. Great score too. It's, it's on Blu-ray for like under 10 bucks. I think. Okay. We might have to add that to the collection at that point then. But, I think so. but my understanding is O'Bannon came out of that experience feeling pretty negative. Like he felt like he had done a lot in a lot to really get co-directing credit of the movie. Uh, and Carpenter was like, nah, that's not really my scene, dude. Like I'm the director and uh, tough if you don't like it too bad. Um, yeah, he's, he's very much a John Carpenter's, you know, like every, every movie has to have him above it, which I mean, he's God to me, so I'm not going to talk shit. But yeah, they, they came out of that. They had a big falling out. And then it was made worse when O'Bannon basically tore Assault and Precinct Team to shreds. Uh, so I mean, it's a bummer that they had a falling out. But that, that movie, it's a trip. Like Dark Stars, Dark Stars is a fun movie, and mm -hmm. it, it is very much a comedy kind of version of Alien. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's cool that O'Bannon eventually, you know, turned that experience into something that that ended up being so just profoundly just intense. Yeah, O'Bannon. It seems like when he came out of that, he said, "I'm going to make." One of the things he came away for after seeing the movie with audiences, he was disappointed that nobody seemed to get the humor. Mm -hmm. that he was really disappointed that nobody was laughing at the things he found really funny. Um, so he's like, well, maybe humor is very subjective and no one, not everyone's going to appreciate what I find funny, but terror is usually a pretty universal phenomenon. So I'm going to go back and write the scary version. I feel like he, he felt not betrayed because I'm not going to put, you know, words into O'Bannon's mouth basically, but like, yeah. You know, nobody did get the humor of Dark Star, and it's a very funny movie, but it's not an obvious kind of humor, you mm -hmm. know? And I, I feel like a lot of people kind of discounted it as being, well, it's just a bad B movie, which, to be honest, you know, as much as I love Carpenter, it kind of is. But the humor's very dry, and you could tell it, 
you could tell that like Carpenter and O'Bannon were the only ones that were kind of in on the joke, you know? And it, it was crazy that like, O'Bannon didn't come back to like somewhat of a comedy horror approach until Return of Living Dead, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, I think amazing. But, you know, but he, Alien, uh, Total Recall, Invaders from Mars, all these great things. Like he was just, he was great. And Lindsay, what other um, films, or because I know overall, like he pulled from a lot of different things overall. What other movies was, or, or sources was O'Bannon pulling from during this time as he's kind of pulling together the script for you? That's, oh gosh, I don't know that I have a great answer to that question. Um, I mean, to me, I look at like Alien, like it's obviously coming from that comic book, no question. I think when it comes to the horror element, the parts, oh gosh, I wish I had prepped examples, but... Um, I did not mean to put you on the No, spot. that's okay. I'm like, oh no, they're not going to think I'm learned. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the things that, and I haven't actually read the script is something that I should and do want to do. Um, what's cool about Alien is it's much more um, claustrophobic and slow. And I think that's something that really probably comes from the page. I mean, obviously the direction, but I'm sure what's really cool on the page is like the dialogue is very short like small and subtle. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really where a lot of the fear comes from. It's just like, you don't really know anything and it's very visual and you're just, you only get like just the tiniest little bit of information at a time. And so I can't necessarily think of specific examples that also mm-hmm. did that, but I just think that's probably what was really striking on the page is that like the dialogue is, there's not a lot of it. And when it's there, it just tells you exactly what you need to know. Right. Well, that that says volumes about his talent, you know. And yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if it was so much from O'Bannon or the people that ended up rewriting it, because I mean, this sure. movie was rewritten by so many people. But I I do think that O'Bannon is the most important person when it comes to this. You know, he he pulled from like everything from like Lovecraft. Yeah. To, to I I think even like those fifties like B movies, you know, Alien's not cheesy in any way, but I, I think that there's, there's a lot of similarities to those movies as well. And like people, I mean, people think, you know, Tarantino is this, this great director and he is, but he pulls from so many of his influences and even some of his detractors talk about how, you know, much he lists from these movies, like it's a bad thing. But I think where, you know, a lot of like cinephiles, you know, they talk about how Tarantino, he pulls from this and that. But I think O'Bannon, what he did with Alien, is he pulled from everything that just inspired him and made him fall in love with the genre and put it into one script that is kind yeah. of like everything and the kitchen sink of just the things that makes him, that made him happy. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, that that's what kind of influenced this. It's I don't think it's anything specific. I think it's more like everything. Lovecraft, you know, those old old B-movies, even some of the Roger Corman stuff, you know, I, I think it's very much there. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely that sense, like the 50s monster movies or the 50s giant bug movies in particular. Like one of the neat things from the Origins documentary, they talk about O'Bannon helping his dad stage a UFO landing um, mm-hmm. and like the local press kind of catching wind of it overall and kind of having a bit of a freak out that maybe some aliens <laughs> landed uh, and, and O'Bannon's mom always like yelling at him for reading those like trashy science fiction books. Um, the idea of Lovecraft, you know, his, the, his fingerprints or his, his ideas, fingerprints are all over the aesthetic of alien. There's just kind of yeah. weird cosmic horror vibe that kind of runs throughout it. Um, that you get the sense that there are forces that are much larger than ourselves at work. And 
at the end of the day, the universe doesn't really care about us one way or the other. Um, we're just kind of these tiny specks of dust when all is said and done. Um, Corman's influence is interesting. I know that there's like talk of movies like The Queen of, of Blood, where yeah. Alien borrows like heavily from the plot of that. Obviously, it just does it with a lot more skill and a lot more of a budget behind it. Corman originally um, was given the script to Alien by O'Bannon and said like, I love this. I will definitely make this movie. But here's the deal. For the scope you want to make this in, I don't have that kind of money. If no one else will buy it, I will. But you got you owe it to yourself to go shop this first. And I kind of love that idea of someone like Corman seeing that and going, I can do this, but other people can do it better. And it deserves well, that, to be seen. That's by unheard someone. of these mm-hmm. days, you know? That's uh, like, producers don't do that these days. They, mm-hmm. like, they say something, they see potential, and they're like, no, I need this. Nobody else needs to see it. I think that that speaks on how, you know, uh, Roger Corman's kind of looked down on sometimes as far as like, you know, budgets and like the cheesiness of his movies, mm-hmm. but that like, he cared about like the films he made. And I think that speaks volumes on Roger Corman, like his character. So we mentioned uh, Queen of Blood. So I actually didn't know about that as like an influence at all until I saw Mm -hmm. the origin documentary. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I had this like moment, I saw that in a theater and I had this moment of like, oh my God, what is Queen of Blood? This is my new, it's my favorite Mm -hmm. movie title. I was like, it's supposed to become my favorite movie. Like the fact that Alien could have been inspired by a movie called Queen of Blood that's so awesome. And it was just like such a great movie. I'm a big fan of that documentary. So yeah, that was just an exciting uh, thing to imagine. It, it's, I always find it fascinating to see like how the connective tissue of things that we love come together in watching how all of these different influences kind of come together to make something new. Because A, it gives you something to go back and look at and watch and discover. So like to your point, like I've never seen Queen of Blood. I've never seen... Um, Plan of the Vampires, which is another one that gets mentioned. But it gives you all these things to kind of, those kind of like 60 science fiction horror movies are huge. Like Corman's work in particular, it's a huge blind spot in my knowledge. I just don't have the, 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 I have never really watched a lot of that output overall. So it's kind of fun to think about going back and maybe checking some of these works out. Now. For sure. Oh, totally. And like, even just like seeing those clips like john saxon seeing him mm-hmm. in this like it looks like the worst episode of star trek but it's, it's like kind of horry and i was like this is amazing <laughs> like, and it's amazing seeing john saxon in like 1967 and being like this dude has an age yeah he looks exactly the same it's like him and i think Paul that a lot Rudd. of that might his hair pee, though. <laughs> well you know it could be do what you gotta do like if i if i look that no judgment it's like when he was 20 years old he looked 45 now that he's like 80 years old he still looks 45 still looks 45 yeah he aged something right yeah he caught up to himself surpassed himself and looks exactly the same Okay. I'm just jealous. I'm definitely. <laughs> I wake every up every day and just say like, "Damn it, Saxon!" It's like usually one of the first things I say every day. And yeah. you know, apropos of nothing. Um, so speaking of blind spots, here's another one I have. Are either of you guys like good to talk about Jodorowsky? Dude, I love Jodorowsky with that okay. passion. So I'm okay. I'm so excited. I am turning the floor over to you and Lindsay. Right oh my now, gosh. Okay. Because I like, might even, yeah, I'm, I'm going to let Jerry take the lead on this one. Okay. Oh, no. Uh, 
Are you a big fan too? No, you go nuts. Okay. So when O'Bannon came in, he basically introduced to Alejandro Jodorowsky, who, I mean, dude, El Topo, Holy Mountain, so many great movies. Uh, a true auteur in the sense that, like, he didn't give a single shit about what anyone thought other than himself. Like, he wanted to make these trippy-ass movies that meant the, like, it meant everything to him, and he didn't care if anyone didn't get it. So it's perfect that he was partnered up with O'Bannon, you know, Jodorowsky wanted to make Dune, which is, I mean, Dune, you know? Like, I love David Lynch with a passion, and he did Dune, and then now we have, uh, you know, Villanueva doing Dune. <laughs> but Jodorowsky had this big idea, and there's a great documentary on it that, that uh, Travis Stevens produced, and I would definitely recommend any of our listeners to watch that. But Jodorowsky wanted to adapt Dune, and he, he basically got O'Bannon to oversee it as far as writing and that kind of stuff, and they, they formed this big partnership. He basically moved O'Bannon to another country to develop it. He courted trippy bands, like just different bands, uh, the most elaborate uh, artists. I mean, it was just like the perfect combination and the movie ended up falling apart. But it, it's through that that O'Bannon eventually like met and you know became friends with H.R. Uh, Giger, uh, who, I mean, if you talk about Alien, you know, we talk about Ridley Scott, we talk about O'Bannon, but HR, his artwork defines that movie to me. Yeah. It is, it is the, the most, like you think of the xenomorph, you think of so many iconic images and it comes straight from that man's imagination. And, you know, yeah, we get every other bro getting these like biomechanical tattoos and, you know, it kind of loses its effect after a while, but the imprint that HR had on Alien because of O'Bannon working on Dune during the time that it was kind of in pre-production, but it ended up falling apart. Like that partnership brought us one of the most iconic, not even just monsters or creatures, but like films in general. HR's imprint on Alien was just like insane, you know? Yeah. And, and, and Dune kind of fell apart after a while. And rightfully so. If you watch that documentary, there's no reason that movie should have existed the way that Jodorowsky wanted it to. Like it was I've insane. Heard it's a wild doc. I've really been like, oh I really want to watch God. it. I heard it's unreal. I watched it at Fantastic Fest a few years ago, and I was just nice. sat there reading like, "What the hell?" Like, didn't he I, want like a fifteen-hour movie, basically? <laughs> Dude, it was insane. Like, they're like, we don't want anything like that. Get David Lynch, right? Yeah, we know how that turned out. When, when David Lynch is your safety director, <laughs> like you definitely. You've gone off no, the rails. this is too weird. Let's get David Lynch. Yes. No, like, I'm not, I'm not advocating <laughs> drug use. I'm not advocating drug use at all. But listeners, dude, Jodorowsky, take some acid and watch El Topo and your life will be different. But anyways. For better or for worse. Right? After Dune fell apart, O'Bannon basically crashed on Ron Shusett's couch. Ron Shusett, I mean, he loved sci-fi just as much as O'Bannon. He loved Philip K. Dick. He loved all these great authors and creators that O'Bannon did. And that is what single-handedly, you know, not just Dark Star leading into Alien, but it was that O'Bannon becoming kind of chums with Jodorowsky, finding HR, and then eventually landing on Ron Shusett's couch, you know, that, that spawned this movie that we're talking about. You know, O'Bannon was kind of bummed about, like, uh, Dune falling apart, so he started writing Aliens. I mean, he had been working on a while, and he showed the first, I think, 20, 30 pages to Ron Shusett. And they instantly knew that they had something that would be just a wonderful film, and that's basically 
you know, where we're at. Those types of things like burn my brain when you hear these stories about these movies that get made against all odds. Like for me, Alien was just like Ridley Scott's Alien. It was a movie that came out. I watched it and fell in love with it. And then you start to think of like all of these variables and all these maybes and all of these potential other versions. And it's wild to think that like the littlest thing that one guy didn't meet one guy at the exact right time, or if the one person who didn't read that page, or if Ridley didn't get the phone call, like we might not have alien and this entire like world changing Mm -hmm. franchise that everyone knows about. It's just crazy to like, it's one of those types of things. I just like, I can't, I can't totally around it. Totally. And, and the idea of like unmade movies, even like, like that is such a huge obsession with me throughout my entire life. I mean, this, I think Wednesday or Thursday, uh, I can't remember which day we agreed on Mike, but uh, we're reading, we're doing a script reading of the original Dennis Etchison script of Halloween 4. Whoa. which, Which is easily one of my favorite scripts of all time i love halloween 4 like the dwight little version so so much but this script is so fucking bonkers yeah that like you you come across these scripts and that's kind of the scripts that we've been reading for for this podcast when we do script readings like the unmade versions that we you know we never saw like we did the george romero uh, resident evil a couple weeks ago you know we did maximum king which is like this ballsy like coke filled uh, retelling of the making of Maximum Overdrive. You know, we're doing oh, Halloween before that. Like, have Alien. you done? Oh, I'm drawing a blank on who the unmade Batman movie. Oh, um, oh God, this is embarrassing. Is it the one not Frank Miller? I'm trying. I it like no, yeah, I think. Oh gosh, this is. Uh, uh, see, one of, of them recently, back. like within a year or two, was circulating the internet, and it's just like a horrible. Was it? Was it disaster. Aronofsky? No, yes. it might. Was it might have been, a, he had one that was definitely floating out there and it was, I think, yeah. based really heavily on Miller's work. Yeah, it but might like, have been. This idea of like these movies that either weren't, like they ended up not being a thing because of one reason or another. Like they're fascinating to me. Yeah, I, yeah the it's the Aronofsky's these, year one. You're right. Yeah, yeah no, I, dude, I'm, I've never read that. I'm dying. Brace. But, uh, uh, yeah. Brace ourselves, strap in yeah. and brace ourselves. Yes. Lovely. Is that the one where they wanted Clint Eastwood to be Batman? Uh, no, not yeah, for probably year not, one. Probably not your one. No, yeah, there was right. a Clint Eastwood. There was something. It might have been the Batman Beyond one where they wanted Clint Eastwood. <laughs> oh, God. But Which like actually kind of makes sense in a weird way. I mean, not Clint Eastwood, but like if it's like it old, kind of makes yeah. sense. Yeah, 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 totally. But these ideas um, that like it didn't take like me long a, to turn this into a Batman conversation. So that's okay. Yeah. That's Dude, all right. <laughs> one of my favorite characters of all time, so I don't mind. But uh, yeah, it's it it's, it it's funny that like Alien. I mean, like you said, Ridley Scott's Alien. Growing up, that was pretty much what this movie was. Right. But like reading the history, whether it's through the Alien Vault, which is funny that you mentioned that, Mike, because that's that's getting delivered to my door. I think in forty-five minutes. Yep. Like. I, I ordered it specifically for this episode and just didn't arrive in time. It's it's down so, to eight bucks on Amazon for the whole. Oh, I know. Right That's now. why I bought it. <laughs> I think we need to do a giveaway. So. Right, I'm down. But like that, or the Mary Doc, or or Charles De La Zirica's mm-hmm. wonderful documentaries. Like it just it makes these films. Like I, I hate to get like really like sentimental, but like as a like you know Halloween is like my bible. Like it is like I love like my wife, my kids, Halloween. That is it. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Anything else? Just get fucked. But any but like like seeing all those docs on this on that huge box set that came out a few years ago, uh, like that just made me so giddy. 
watching the special features on the alien box set makes me giddy. And all these like perfect ingredients is why Alien works so much. It's not just O'Bannon. It's not just Ridley Scott. It's not just Brandywine Productions. It's not just Ron Shusett. It's the combination of all these wonderful things that led to this movie that even before we get into the movie, it's a huge undertaking and it's a huge epic adventure of just getting this story told. Right. Yeah. Shusett waking up O'Bannon in the middle of the night going, I got it. Like when O'Bannon is hit with this writer's block and, and he's like, I got it. And O'Bannon's like, what do you got? He's like, it's going to impregnate the host, basically. Like him coming up with that idea of like the face hugger at like two in the morning, um, just waking up with an aha moment. It's just kind of this wonderful, this just wonderful image overall. It, it's in how inspiration strikes. And like you would say, like, it's, you know, Lindsay, you had said how this is like Ridley Scott's alien, but yeah. we almost got like Walter Hill's alien. Um, yeah. The script lands on, I, I have to imagine that's a much different, different movie overall. And are we still, you know, are we talking about it in the same way at that point? Because like, Hill reads the script and he's like, eh, it's okay. Like, I love the chestburster scene, but the rest of it I could really do without. Um, and, and they were mean about it. Yeah. They were not very nice to mm-hmm. O'Bannon at first. In fact, right. the whole time, like, it wasn't just a meh thing. Like, I, I remember one quote, I can't remember what documentary it was from, like, some people were saying, like, they full-on hated the script, but the yeah. Chesperger scene was okay. Like, that was mm-hmm. a reason to, like, you know, pursue right. it. Oh, Bannon has said, like, I forget who one of the producers was that he wanted a co-writing credit because he ended up changing all the names of the characters. And O'Bannon is like, you know, this jackass thought, oh, if I change the name of the character, I've done enough to change the story to warrant like a script writing credit. O'Bannon wasn't having any of that. (laughs) Yet he gives, you know, Shusett gets a a co-writing credit for it because of the contributions he did. So it wasn't like O'Bannon was married to this idea that it was his, but, you know, he wasn't going to let these very minor changes kind of influence his work or really, or not even influence his work, but to kind of lessen the impact he had on, on it. Yeah. No, totally. I, I agree 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's it's a bummer because, I mean, can you imagine being O'Bannon working your ass off for, you know, throughout the whole debacle of fucking Dune? Like, I mean... God, I would recommend watching that documentary because, like, as being a lifelong, like, Dune fan, watching that documentary about Jodorowsky's Dune, like, it just, like, opened your eyes. What Mm -hmm. the hell? This would have been the weirdest movie of all time. O'Bannon spent so much of his time on that. And then he goes, like, just jumps right into Alien to make it, like, as great as it is. And then it gets in the hands of, like, all these people, and they're like, well, it's kind of shit. But, hey, you Mm -hmm. got one nugget, one kernel of great ideas. Which is silly because I've read the script and it's actually pretty fucking cool, mm-hmm. you know? And like Walter Hill, I mean, I love Walter Hill's movies so much, but he was such a kind of a jerk about it. Like, like there would be no alien without what O'Bannon brought to the table. And mm-hmm. yeah, the names were changed. Yeah, a lot of the story was fleshed out more when Hill and Dave Geiler and all these people came on board. But O'Bannon very much is the spirit of this movie. And everything that we know about Alien is because of three people. Three people. And as much as Walter Hill and David Geiler and everyone at Fox and everyone else had their hand in it, what we know about Alien, the reason we're talking about Alien right now is because of Dan O'Bannon, H.R. Giger, and Ridley Scott. And O'Bannon deserves to be 
kind of at the forefront of that mm-hmm. because he created something. He created a story, a story of space truckers. I mean, basically getting invaded. It's very much a home invasion, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as well as many other things. It's a slasher and, movie before slasher movies have really established. It's about being yeah, violated. Kind of that formula. No, but yeah, totally. it really is the like one kill at a time formula of like a slasher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And it's very much a film and a script about being violated, about being invaded, you know, and it's, it's funny. It's, I'm like thinking, you know, personal experience way back when I did a bunch of night school for screenwriting and I had this very cool professor. And one thing he let me do was I participated in this seminar for directors where <laughs> directors asked for scripts and they shot scripts for their reels. So I gave him something I wrote to shoot and he let me come and be on the set for the day. And he knew exactly what he was doing to me was to like prove to me that I couldn't direct from the page. (laughs) And what a wild feeling to like watch someone take something that you wrote and make something completely different out of it. And it's good to like thought in your head. Like, you know, I always think about when someone wins best picture, like who gets the award, right? Like, whose movie is this? Who made this movie? Because if you're the writer, you're like, well, this is me. If you didn't have my story, you wouldn't have a movie, but the director made the movie, but, and, and your, your screenplay was just as much of a tool as the actor was, right? Right. It's such a strange thing how they're, they just need to be married so perfectly. And what's interesting too, when you think of like television versus film as a medium, television is very much considered a writer's medium. Yeah. You have like you have like your Vince Gilligan's, your uh, Josh Whedon's. You have um, oh god, uh, David Simon. Like they're not typically directing episodes of their television series, but they're considered the driving creative force behind it. I think of like yeah. uh, Greg Daniels and Michael Schur, who are responsible for so much of the comedy that we've kind of you know to grow in love between The Office, Parks and Rec, The Good Place, The Night Night. Like they might not be directing episodes, but as writers, they're considered like the ones that are really the creative totally. masterpieces behind it, where film is a completely different. For sure. it, it is, it is totally. And I, I think even on speaking on the O'Bannon, uh, as far as influence and not like just not being, honestly not being respected as much as he should be. Like, like I said, what we know of Alien, you know, Giger was so influential on the design and everything that we know, like, as far as the imagery of the film. Like, you know, uh, Walter Hill and Guyler, like, they try to play down O'Bannon's influence in the movie. Like, O'Bannon paid, if I'm not like mistaken, O'Bannon paid, like, what, a thousand bucks out of his own pocket. wallet? For, yeah, for mm-hmm. Giger. Just to make sure that Giger was the one in charge of this, mm-hmm. the one, like, steering that. That is passion. That is love for what you're about to give right. to audience. Like, like that is yeah. it's in a, unheard of in 2020, you know? And they're just like, those two things are completely inseparable. Like, there's no alien without Giger and anything right. Giger. You look at it, you're like, oh, it reminds me of Alien. Like, we were talking about um, John Barkhan and I actually, we were talking about, he posted a thread about that new um, Giger horror game that's coming out. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, well, this is obviously going to be like a surprise alien spinoff, which like it probably won't actually be a surprise alien spinoff. When you look at it, you're like, oh, this is Prometheus 2 or whatever, like, mm-hmm. because that's what <laughs> it looks like. Those two things look the same. Um, they're just like they're completely inseparable. Yeah. I mean, so much of his and we're going to talk about Giger more in depth here in one sec. I think that's the next place to go. What's fascinating to me is 
under Walter Hill's direction and as pre-production is ramping up, Fox comes in, looks at what Giger is doing, and they throw him off set. They kick him out of the country. They're like, go back to Switzerland. Like, you're out. <laughs> um, they are horrified by what, you know, they see from him. They're like, this is disturbing. This is this is disgusting. It, it's pornography. It's, it's impure. Like, they absolutely want no part of him. Um, and it's not until... Ridley Scott is brought on board. And this is Scott's second picture, right? Like after The Duelist, Alien is his second film. Yes, Which is I think so he insane. only did like shows, but he had like mm-hmm. a short and a couple of episodes mm-hmm. of shows. Right. So yeah. this isn't Sir Ridley Scott Oscar award winner. This is like yeah. Young Buck. And Scott comes on and he talks to O'Bannon. And I think O'Bannon is, is, was, even, was said like, hey, look, this was a real, like you guys have said, the three of us together work so well as a team and that's almost unheard of on a movie. And, and Giger's like, well, you know, I mean, O'Bannon's like, I've got this guy, H.R. Giger, who, you know, we had him and we fired him. Um, these are his designs. And Scott has took one look at the Necronomicon and he goes, yep, that's it. This is what I want. Like, this is exactly it. Get, bring him back. And he fights with Fox and he wins. And it's one of many battles that Scott's going to win when creating Alien. But Giger is brought in. Oh, totally. Nice game. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he knew what the fuck was up. Sir Ridley <laughs> no, like, lays down the law. But can you imagine, like, like, I'm not trying to, like, piss off Walter Hill fans because I am one. You're like, oh, my God. Like, the fire is just golden. But... The fact that Walter Hill came in and took the script by O'Bannon's so like, oh, this is shit, but has one good sense. Tried to do his whole rewrite thing. And at the end of the day, it was like, oh, this project's not good enough for me. I'm going to move on. I don't want to direct it. Like, that's just like balls right there. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he completely took over the project, kind of downplayed the importance of the actual person who wrote it, and then basically jumped shit, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think Ridley Scott coming on board even though he was relatively unknown at that point, which is so weird to say, so weird. Ridley Scott being unknown, but uh, like it speaks volumes on how like just amazing of a like a director that really Scott was. He yeah. he recognized the importance of not only Giger but O'Bannon, but the themes of the story, but the design of the story. He recognized so many important aspects that I think the film wouldn't be the mm-hmm. same if it was directed by Hill or anyone else. It's like thinking of like The Witch directed by anyone else besides Robert Egger. Right. Are, you saying, are you saying that Paul Thomas Anderson couldn't direct The Witch? I'm saying that he did not direct. <laughs> so, you know, it has Physically. A, yeah. Yes. He could not do it, correct. Nor should he be, <laughs> nor should he be allowed to. Um, so let's talk more about, uh, let's take, talk more about H.R. Giger and his work and his his influence over this film and his influence over pop culture. I think the first time I heard of H.R. Giger would have been in the 80s and the whole Dead Kennedys um, penis landscape uh, that they were sued over. Um, I'm trying to think, was it the Frankenchrist album by the Dead Kennedys? I think um, so. I could be wrong. Yeah, but I know exactly what you're talking about. It's basically a lot of dick on the album cover in there. <laughs> And they're sued by Tipper Gore and the PMRC. Uh, Who wasn't sued by Tipper Gore in the 80s? 
I wasn't, but I was, you know, Ted Crew, you know, Dead Kennedys. It's good company to Keith. It's definitely good company. Um, But yeah, he's, you know, an artist known for his surrealistic work. It's obviously heavily steeped uh, in Lovecraftian lore or heavily influenced by, and he would call his work biomechanical, this kind of fusion of the flesh and mechanics overall. It is some gorgeous but absolutely horrific and nightmare. Well, it's it's interesting because, I mean, especially in, like, this day and age, like, you go to any tattoo shop, there's, like, you know, people with traditional tattoos, and there's that one dude in every tattoo shop that has, like, all biomech stuff, mm-hmm. you know? That, like, a huge, massive bullring in his nose, you know what I mean? But, yeah. like, it, it's funny because, like, Giger, like, his work is so... I hate to overuse the word iconic, but it is. I mean, that biomech I don't think that's stuff, an overuse. I think that, like, you uh, know, I, I, yeah. You know exactly must, what's Giger when you see it. Exactly. Uh, I think by overuse, I just, I just mean, like, I, I yeah. always, unfortunately, use the same word over and over in every episode. Fair, fair, fair. Uh, if but you like, take the yeah. alien out of... <laughs> This movie, it really is a great coming of age tale. Oh God, yeah. I get bad reviews every time I say that. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, one Friday Thirteenth episode just screwed me for life by saying that. <laughs> it was a coming of age. Yeah, the final chapter. I said, you know, if you take all the character, if you take Jason out of it, it's a great coming of age movie. Awesome. And I got so many bad reviews saying, like, oh God, fire Jerry. But uh, <laughs> well, but Giger, his work is. Like how many artists that I mean, as soon as you see it, I mean, I mean, like you know, like you said, you know, it's Giger. Yeah, and there's like no mistaking it. Not at all, you know. And it's iconic, and it's also like it's interesting because it's it's just, it's biomechanical, but it's also kind of sexual in a way. And yeah, like, not in a I, way I, like directly <laughs> sexual. Like the face hugger is a vagina. Uh, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, which is great, but. Uh, uh, you know, like you, you, you see this stuff and it's just like, it's hard to get that out of your brain. And I can't imagine Alien being any other way other than, you know, with Giger's imprint on it. Yeah, for sure. Like the, I mean, the Xenomorph, you talk about for a hundred years and same with the face hugger. And like, there is that scene where they capture the face hugger and kind of pick it apart. And it almost looks like, I mean, it looks like body parts but it's almost like an oyster like and how they're Mm -hmm. just peeling it and you can like hear it even though it's not really making any sound like you can hear it you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. so gross and it hurts and it's nasty but it also looks like a robot like that's oh my god I think there's there's this like tactic feel to so many of the creations movie you had just said Lindsay you know, when, I think you are right. It actually was like oyster and mussel and shellfish oh, that was that, filled that in sense. the. So that's you know, dead on right there, uh, which I can only imagine the stink uh, when filming that scene. Um, but there's like, it, to me, when, when I look at the design of the xenomorph, I imagine like running my hand over like the very phallic head and thinking that there would be some resistance. You couldn't just very easily slide your hand over it, that there would be this kind of resistance and friction to <laughs> And, like, Tor- even the chest burster, like, mm-hmm. it's it's silly. Like, watching that scene now, it's, like, super cartoony, and maybe it kind of seems cartoony because we've seen Spaceballs so yeah. many times. Mm-hmm. And when it, like, juts away, it looks really silly and weird mm-hmm. and, like, again, kind of cartoony. 
But like that thing is so scary and every little mm-hmm. line on its head, like this wasn't just like a tiny monster. This is going right. to grow into a xenomorph. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So when you see it, like it is so menacing because of it's just like, the little details around the side of its face and its teeth and its teeth are like metallic. Mm-hmm. They're not white. They're not the same color as his like exoskeleton. I don't know her exoskeleton and it's it's just wild like it is so menacing even though it's this like teeny tiny little thing like yeah just burst through a guy's gut and killed him but you're kind of like what is this little cartoon cutie and then you're like oh no that is gonna kill everyone when it turns you with those razor sharp teeth and it's this tiny tiny little thing and you know what it's gonna grow into but at that moment when you when you don't or when you see it for the first time it's it's terrifying and to me this almost you can almost put a distinction between what's a horror movie and another genre, which should be what's a terror movie. Mm. Because to me, terror is this thing that this you're this fear of the unknown and this being confronted with things that should not be. And there is nothing that is natural looking about this creature. It's it's composed of all these things that are semi-recognizable. Obviously, it looks like a giant cock, for lack of a better <laughs> term, with teeth. Um, and you're so terrified by confronting it that you almost you have to record. Well, for me, I mean, it goes back to when they go to LV-426. I remember being a child, and I will never forget this feeling ever uh like i said i'm 39 and this still feels like it happened yesterday seeing this movie for the first time when they get to lb 426 and they see that huge just cavernous Mm. area Mm -hmm. like i remember feeling like more scared in that moment that i had ever felt in my Mm -hmm. life because i didn't want to be there it's like you know what i mean dreadful it is you I know, didn't there. and every time I watch it, I mean, I watched it last week or the week before. I see I've lost track of time during this. <laughs> yeah, time is a social contract. Whenever Alien Day was, I, I watched the first couple movies, with and I remember watching and having the same exact unsettling feeling in my gut. I don't want to be here with this. Yeah. And so, what the chest burster ends up being is the like accumulation of every terror filled like feeling that i had being in there i don't like what's crazy is i was shouting and like just freaking out watching this movie a week or two ago and i have seen it so many times yeah like it's still able to just get under my skin that like my my wife and my kids were kind of laughing at me going like why are you freaking out like you write about stuff for a living it's tense (laughs) you just you just used the word dreadful Lindsay, and i want to go back to that talk about that feeling of dread the first Mm -hmm. time and one of the things i love and, and learned just learned i was today days old is that scene where the um where they first come down and leave the ship and enter 426 those are children actors because oh they couldn't quite get the scale of the entry of the ship to look right with the scale of um the set design of the i think it's called the derelict is what the name of the alien ship is so mm-hmm. they had children in these space suits and they just filmed it at 48 frames a second and slowed it down to 24 to get the scale right but that's a little what? nerd fact i know Ridley Scott, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. uh, or I, whomever the cinematographer was, I don't know. I can't figure out how to make grilled cheese sandwiches that are <laughs> you know, that, that come wow. out right. So, so wow. talk, talk to me about this feeling of dread, because I think that is the perfect word. Yeah. 
it it's it there is a feeling of dread i think through the whole movie i think like your last i mean it doesn't even really get um like terrifying until the chest burster which is at like the halfway point and mm-hmm. even then it's still a little slow and i think it's just super dreadful like we talk about the um the po- like you know in space no one can hear you scream like that is that makes you want to like just like that makes me feel sick like mm-hmm. yeah there is nothing it is dark it is quiet there's no one who can answer your message. There's no one who's going to find you. And that's really what the movie creates. Like they're on their way home and they're asleep and there is nothing and no one and mm-hmm. nowhere. And suddenly they have to make this stop on this planet that they don't know anything about. They heard what might be a distress signal. It could have been a voice. It could have been a radio signal. And they have to against like, which they don't think is part of their job. It's not something they want to do or should have to do. It's not in their job description. And they have to just like get off of their ship, their safety vessel that's taking them home after, you know, a long, however long they were working. And they walk onto this like darkened planet that's filled with like, it looks like the inside, like it's very much that biomech. It looks like a cave, but it also looks like Mm -hmm. they're inside a body. Like you almost Mm. see ribs, Mm -hmm. but but it, that's not what it is. And they're looking at this strange ship and there's something around. And like, that just makes you feel like, oh my God. Like I wouldn't get off that ship if my life depended on it. Are you You crazy? You could be like, you're not getting paid. I'm like, I'm going home, Mm -hmm. dude. You know, I know you say that, but I bet you would. I I would totally get off the ship a hundred (laughs) percent. Right. There's this part of, this is, this is part of the human psyche that is absolutely compelled by the things we know that will do a sin. It's like when we're children and we see a flame, like part of us knows that it's going to burn us if we touch it, yet we put our hands over it anyway, you know? Um, So it's like you... You're, you're, you look at Dallas, Kane, and Lambert, and you're like, please don't get off the ship. Or, you know, like you see this atmosphere and it's so uninviting. And, but you're like, you're compelled to go with them every step of the way. And like you just said, the moment you step on the derelict and you look inside of it, um, I found myself watching this movie again recently and feeling really queasy during yeah. these moments because it does look, it looks to me like a, animal that has been skinned that the boy that the the bones have been boiled and then lacquered over and everything has been clean so it's because it's so clean it's so antiseptic but you know what you're looking at look it looks like it was a breathing organism at one point and it just feels wrong right and it like kind of comes back to the like i mean it's explored more in prometheus and it kind of comes back to the way Ash talks about the Xeno as like this perfect being. And that's really kind of what it later comes to feel like the engineers are perfection. Mm-hmm. So I like how you described it. Like it's so clean, but it's still scary and biomech. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's of course it's sparkling clean because engineers are perfect mm-hmm. and it's what they created in a way. So it's, yeah, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do we, so once we're in that ship, let's, can we talk about the space jockey? for a few minutes yeah yeah, yeah totally yeah, I, I think we cannot i mean i don't think there's any more direct link to lovecraft and the elder gods than the um the space jockey what you yeah. see well um, that was like uh directly from at the mountains of madness mm-hmm. right you're correct yep Ooh. 
Oh, so, totally. And yeah. I mean, uh, that's that's one of Lovecraft's most beloved stories, mm-hmm. and rightfully so. It's amazing. And that's actually another script that we want to do for the script reading pretty soon. Mm-hmm. That's right. But uh, yeah, I mean, the influence of Lovecraft, I mean, it's right there. The space mm-hmm. jockey's taken straight from that story. But I mean, it's so, the imagery is just so compelling, I, I mm-hmm. think, that, you know, you want to know about this thing. You want to know about what you're seeing in front of you. You want to know the history mm-hmm. and you want to know so many things. And it adds, it has such a creepy feeling to it that you know that like, like I said, when they get on LV-426 and they get into that ship and they get to all this stuff, you don't want to be there. And then you see this thing in the middle and then you see this huge hole in it. Like something mm-hmm. came out of mm-hmm. there. You know what I mean? Like there's that, I mean, like you said, dreadful. There's that sense of dread. There's that sense of terror mm-hmm. that like, what is coming my way? I'm not ready for it. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that scene alone is just, I mean, it's it's perfect to me. Yeah. Like what a stunning visual that like, it tells you exactly what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And you don't see it coming. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you remember the first time you watched Alien, but like you don't see that coming at all. And it tells you exactly what's going to happen. And then again, right. later we learn a lot about engineers but ultimately we have no idea what the right. space jockey is mm-hmm. in alien it is just like mm-hmm. it's big it's got a lot of like bone like it looks powerful and it's toast so what happened to yeah. that thing like humans it, look yeah. like little like rodents compared to this thing exactly that it's the moment where you realize how small and unimportant the crew of the nostrum the nostromo is because yeah Look at the, the derelict ship. It's a giant, impressive looking ship and it's intimidating, but so is the Nostromo. Like that's a giant machine yeah. as well. Yeah, true. Um, when you see Kane and Lambert and Dallas up against this giant creature that is eons old, you just, you lose a sense of time because if this thing is so old, you have no idea where it ends and where the machine begins at that point. They just look melded into one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you realize just how insignificant humankind is against the vastness of the universe. And that Which, to me, is just, that's a scary thought. Again, oh, it's it, you know, a dread in a weird way. Especially, yeah, especially since we're kind of living in that now. Mm-hmm. Like we've, we've went how long thinking that we're just like the bee's knees, that we're the only thing that matters. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, where are we now? We're, yeah, now we're all you know, hiding. Our, our, store, mm-hmm. our stores are closed. We're in quarantine. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you know, it, it feels like Jurassic Park in a way yeah. right now in this day and age. Like, yeah. it feels like, you know what? It's it's our time to go, mm-hmm. you know? Like, and I'm not, I don't mean that to sound like really gloom and doom, mm-hmm. but like, it's it's the same principle. Like, we, we think that we're basically the focus of the world, and the world is replying, no, mm-hmm. you're not. You're insignificant yeah. and you're small. And Alien is such a good example of that and many other things. Like, yeah. it's, such a good ex- it's such a good example of saying, you guys think that you're all that matters. Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. You're nothing compared to what right. else is out there. And, like, I think that's a theme that Ridley loves and ultimately explores. Like, he definitely has a religious lens through which he mm-hmm. sees a lot mm-hmm. of things. So... If, if anything, he makes humans seem more important because of the religious lens. But I think that's a theme that he explores a lot, like how human hubris, like how we think that we're infallible and mm-hmm. untouchable. And 
that's ex exactly like what you're saying, what we're experiencing now. We think we're completely infallible and this tiny microscopic virus has completely upended our entire way of life. And it's as simple as that. And yeah, that's definitely something he explores. I mean, he, again, through a religious lens, I think, um, you know, the vice of uh, immortality mm -hmm. and how in Prometheus and Covenant, it suggested that like Wayland wants to be immortal and that's what he's chasing out in like the depths of the universe. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, no one cares about you, Waylon. You're just a dude with a company. Like you need to get, get out of here. And like, it's that human hubris of this, like we're these untouchable, we're the kings of the universe. Cause you know, we're the top of the food chain. And like, that's just not at all the case. And I think, yeah, that's definitely a, a really good point to like, that's really what he showed us with the space jockey and really way later. Absolutely. And getting back a little bit too to some of the like the religious imagery in the film in a way Giger would tweak religious iconic iconic religious imagery because I cannot pronounce that other word to save my life right now um so the way uh Giger would tweak religious imagery when he first designed the egg it yeah. looked like a vagina still and kind of does yeah it still does but he was told like it was just a one um horizontal slit basically and production came back and said, this looks great. Um, we are going to get protested very heavily by Catholics overall. So please, can we tweak it? But he's like, sure. So Which he made wild it wild because like it's like supposed to be used to like show birth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we're like, but no, no, that's obscene. Yeah, cannot <laughs> do that. And <laughs> yeah. now it, so he made it look like a crucifix, basically. Yeah. yeah. Which is wonderful. He's like, fuck the Catholics. Fine. Yeah. yeah. And in a way it almost, it almost, it's, almost more horrifying the way that the eggs open and show what's inside. It's, it's just so gross. God, it's just so wonderful and grotesque. I love everything about the designs in this movie. Overall. Well, that and like the, speaking on the eggs for a little bit, I, I think watching uh, Alien and also watching BTS, there's two scenes that just make me just, it just gets under my skin and it mm -hmm. involves the eggs. It's, it's when, it's when Kane, you know, gets the face hugger on him mm -hmm. or, or my head. I his name. Or, I'm so glad you brought this up though. Yeah. Yeah. And Prometheus, the mm -hmm. same thing happens to, to him. And it's the kind of, it's kind of, of this invasion it's i mean like i said it's it's being exploited it's it's being invaded it's being uh you know finding a hard time finding the words but it, it's it's taking you over that it, it you know it, it speaks on a lot of fears that that people have and it involves like a lot of uh just really interesting ideas i i think and i think both those scenes in both alien and prometheus they kind of uh the scene in Prometheus kind of harkens, you know, what happens in Alien. It kind of goes back to that, and it kind of, uh, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, 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 I like, yeah, I, I love that you brought that up, because I think that's one of the scenes in Prometheus that gets, um, it's like the first objection people have to it. Like, when I'm like, oh, Prometheus is so great. So I'm like, oh my god, remember when he just took off his helmet and put his face in the egg? And you're like, mm -hmm. yeah, of course I do. Yeah, and I do that. <laughs> So two things, I like what you just said about how like, it's almost this like romantic exploration that turns yeah. into being very invasive. Mm -hmm. And to pretend that like humanity wouldn't put their face in something dangerous to explore mm -hmm. it and invade it is wild. Like, of course humanity would. We all just said that we would probably get off the ship and go explore. Mm -hmm. So of course we would. And then this is just some like nitpicky, not nitpicky, but just some like nerd nonsense because of course. Um, 
it's wild that that's slaughtered so much in um, Prometheus when it's exactly what happens in Alien. Mm-hmm. And he does the exact same thing, and everybody's like, oh my god, in Prometheus, it was so mm-hmm. terrible, but Alien's perfect. But another thing that's cool in the director's cut, that seems recut a little bit, where Kane actually, uh, when he sees the motion inside the egg, he draws his weapon. Mm. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. can kind of see, like, in the cut, when he gets close, he's, like, lowering his weapon down. And it's kind of, like, it's so small, but that is a huge difference that like there's a huge difference between a guy being like oh what is that and a guy like drawing his weapon and I think as much as we like slaughter and skewer the guy in Prometheus or putting his face in there it's really interesting that like that is a massive variance in the two versions I think like that's something I could obsess about for like absolutely (laughs) because I think that little detail of drawing the weapon shows that Kane's aware of a danger, which I don't think there's anything in the actual cut of Alien that shows Kane feeling that he's ever in any sort of danger. Like he is the one that's always like, we have to go on, we have to press on. And there's this, it really like Scott is really speaking to this really innate human hubris that is basically says, we don't ever think anything really bad can happen. Like, Mm -hmm. sure, we do take precautions, but at the end of the day, I think most of us go day to day thinking like nothing really bad can happen to us. And our curiosity will sometimes get the best of us in really horrible. Well, it kind of speaks on the arrogance that we all have as people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you said, well, nothing bad's going to happen to me. It's like, like, how often do we as people kind of go through life feeling that way? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, no, you know, I'm okay because I'm a, you know, quote, unquote, good person kind right. of thing, you know? I don't know. And- like, I, I almost have a slight, I don't want to say retort, but like to add okay. to that. Uh-huh. And uh, apologies, this comes off strangely. But um, I think another one of the themes that we've all, I mean, it's all over our notes. So I know we all saw it. Um is like the the way the blue collar workers and mm-hmm. the like the the women and the oh gosh whatever the women and the black guy how they Parker see things and... very differently what okay. Parker right yeah so bad at names Parker I want to say yeah. Um, yeah how they see the world very differently mm-hmm. and so Dallas and Kane are kind of like yeah whatever what's going on but Parker and Ripley are like seal this up like they see the world really differently so it's funny like you guys are talking very Mm -hmm. casually like yeah i don't think anything's gonna you know whatever is where like i walk my dog at night Mm -hmm. like terrified every time (laughs) so it's interesting that like it even seems like we have very different views in a way does that make sense that's 100 percent makes sense and i think that's a really wonderful way to kind of raise awareness and say like hey Maybe you two white dudes think nothing bad is going to happen, but for the like, rest really? of the, for the rest of the world, we actually have to look over our shoulder and be much more aware of our surroundings at all times. I think, honestly, I think that that's the kind of thing that we should get called out. For. Oh no, no, I, I like, agree. we just like I, accidentally exemplified I, the theme of the movie there. No, 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 no. I I agree hundred percent, and I think what I meant as far as like nothing bad is going to happen. No, I, I, yeah, I kind of yeah. I I kind of meant that like talking shit about people that do feel that way. Like I'm, I'm the first person to be like, I wake up in the morning and like, okay, what is going to happen? For sure. But I, I, I mean, like kind of as a, a spital hole, you know, like, like, especially in America today, you For know, sure. it's, it's like w- when this pandemic happened, like what was the first thing that was kind of said? Oh no, we'll be okay. Don't worry yeah. about it. We're, we're America. 
you know, like, like yeah. that arrogance is, is kind of what yeah, I'm, the what I'm human, talking about. Yeah, for sure. I like, I assumed that you were more talking about like how, what we were saying before, like we did not predict that our entire way of life would be completely upended mm-hmm. by a virus. It's impossible. Like when you read about the plague, you think, well, that wouldn't happen now because you know, then they were filthy and you know, messed things up and didn't have good science. So they didn't know anything. That's how the plague happened. And then, you know, here we are. Also, I mean, <laughs> I mean what, what you're saying right now, I mean, without going into detail, I mean, it kind of speaks on like what the like insanity on Twitter is going on. Some people don't realize that other people like a different experience you know what I mean like something completely different and I think there also needs to be that respect of that like you know and I I agree with you 100% on that yeah it's interesting yeah without diving too deep into that no 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 yeah yeah so I want to pivot because Lindsay you I think made a really good point to transition out of talking about how alien is kind of this cautionary tale for the working class and how it really, I think, champions working class people. So let's go. You have some wonderful notes here. So I'm going to allow you to take the, I'm going to allow you to take the lead, right? Okay. Um, Yeah. Uh, I think one of the themes that, I mean, I definitely missed it on my first viewing, but I've watched it a thousand times. So I've eventually picked up on it is, um, you know, the very different approach that everyone on the ship takes and the first few minutes of the movie are silent. They're almost exposition, but not really. It's kind of ship. It's going on. Everybody's asleep and they're slowly waking up. And the very first conversation anyone has is about their bonuses and their shares. Mm-hmm. So right away, it's immediately established that, okay, these are working class folks and they want their money. They've just done a really hard job and they're really concerned that they're going to get shortchanged. And Dallas, mm-hmm. the like white guy in charge, is very cavalier. Like he... He laughs at them when they bring up the money thing. He's kind of like, I don't know, I'll check into it and whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, they're genuinely concerned. And that that takes place throughout. Like, yeah, Parker brings up his shares and bonus a whole chunk of times. Um, oh, gosh, his name. Um, joins Brett? in on the conversation. Yes, Brett joins in on the conversation pretty often. Ripley is just super confident, which is essentially what I want to break down. And that's really the theme throughout. As soon as things start to go badly, there's a huge split in how the crew handles the situation. Mm -hmm. And so when they hear the call, Parker is like, absolutely not. This is not in my job description. I'm on my way home. And Ash chimes in with, well, actually, this very tiny part, well, he doesn't say it's very tiny part, but it's kind of assumed based on the way he says it. This really tiny part of your contract that you probably didn't read says that if a specific thing happens, such as a distress signal from another life form, you must go explore it. Otherwise, you forfeit all your shares. So if you don't do this incredibly dangerous thing that should never happen but did happen today, you're not getting paid. Right. SOS. I don't know. Human. Unknown. So what? <laughs> we are obligated on the section. Well, I hate to bring this up, but uh, this is a commercial ship, not a rescue ship. Right. And it's not my contract to do this kind of duty. And what about the money? If you want to give me some money to do, I'd be happy to. Uh, Let's go over the bonus situation. We never can talk, we, can we just talk about the bonus situation. Sorry, can I say something? Let's talk about the bonus situation. There is a clause in the contract which specifically states any systematized transmission indicating a possible intelligent origin must be investigated. I don't want to hear it. We don't know that's intelligent. I want to go home and party. Parker, will you just listen to the man? The penalty of total forfeiture of shares. You got that? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going in. Yeah, we're going in. The perspective that Ripley has versus Parker is very, very different in that moment. Like Parker's really upset and Ripley's like, well, the rules are the rules. And that's very much how she approaches everything. Mm -hmm. And And Ripley will also say to Parker and Brett, well, you guys will get what you're contracted to get. Don't worry. You'll get what you're contracted for. And that's not what Parker is ever arguing. Parker is never arguing. Am I going to get paid or not? What Parker is saying, look, we're taking on the same risks as you. We're also responsible for maintaining and running the ship. It can't go without us. Yet, right. for whatever reason, we're getting half of what you're getting. Yeah. Right. Like, they're calling that out right out the gate. And then when things go awry, such, uh, such as, you know, a faith hugger being latched onto one of your crew members, mm-hmm. they, they really vary on how they want to handle it. And, of course, Parker and Brett being the like working class blue collar guys are like quarantine him, get him out of here, Mm -hmm. shoot it off his face, freeze him. I don't care. I don't want to be anywhere near it. Ripley, who at this point still is your classic worker who believes in the system is like, well, we got to follow specific protocol. Again, in the director's cut, uh, she disobeys the order um, that Dallas gives her. And Dallas is like, you disobeyed me. And she's mm-hmm. like, well, it was an illegal order. It was, it was, she says it was against the law. Mm-hmm. Um, but she doesn't do that in, uh, in the theatrical, I don't think. Um, and Ripley is very much this character who has been convinced that the system is good for her. And I think, again, 2020, we're watching how people are reacting to a pandemic by saying, I want to go back to work, stop mm-hmm. closing businesses, I want to work. We've been convinced that this is a beneficial system for us. Mm -hmm. And she is a portrait of that. And her entire behavior is dictated by, you're gonna get your share as contractually Mm -hmm. obligated as long as we follow the rules Mm -hmm. by law. She says the phrase by law. She says the phrase, uh, she says the word protocol a whole chunk of times. And it is not until she is staring down the barrel of mother's computer screen saying crew expendable Mm -hmm. that she is like, oh wait, my company doesn't care about me. Right. And it's, you know, again, it's so, it's so now to think like, it's not until you're staring down the barrel of without calling out a company, but you're not getting a raise or hazard pay, but you will go to work mm-hmm. for 26 K a year. It's not until that moment where you actually might die that you, the, a lot of people that are otherwise happy cogs in this massive wheel or massive machine are going to be like, Oh, hold on a second. <laughs> Right. And that's really Ripley's journey. Like she she really changes in the movie from someone who mm-hmm. is by the book, believes in the system, capitalism works, I am a worker bee, to oh my god, my company doesn't care if mm-hmm. I die. And that's when she changes her behavior, which I think is really exciting. And I think it's really cool to see like how Dallas and obviously Ash, but he's Ash, um, you know, approaches things so differently and has a very different worldview than the other. We just last week, Jerry and I talked about They Live and we talked about the difference between um, Keith David's character and Roddy Piper's character. And Keith David's character gives this really fiery speech about how we're all cogs on the wheel, how when there's time to bail somebody out, all of the money goes to the people at the top and then they go Mm -hmm. ahead and pocket that money instead of making sure that we get ours. And Roddy Piper's character of Nada says, I believe in America. I believe that if I work hard, 
that I'm going to be rewarded for that pay. And it's not until he sees the community that he's grown to be a part of smashed to pieces in front of him for no reason that he sees that this is all of a lie. And to your point, it's not until Ripley gains access to Mother and sees the line crew expendable that she's like, oh shit, everything that I've been taught to believe and everything that I've really put my faith in, it's bullshit. You know, yeah. it's not, and you had just said like, we want to get rid of the shelter in place and we want to go back to work. And a lot of what I'm seeing is not so much, I want to go back to work. It's I want others to go back to work. I yeah. want to yeah. get a haircut. I yes. want to go to a bar. I yes. want to go to a movie theater. I Ugh. want my stock portfolio to go back. Um, so a lot of us, I'm fortunate enough that I can do my work from home as a school counselor and mental health counselor. I'm very fortunate and privileged. And I understand for some people that's not the case. Um, but instead of living in this society where, look, during this really difficult time, we're going to put mechanisms in place that take care of you, that make sure that you have the funding you need to pay your bills or to kind of, you know, relieve you of those bills for a little bit because you can't pay bills if you're dead. It's saying you need to get back to work. Yeah. And there's a really insidious idea that a lot of the reason these shelter in place orders are being lifted, it's not so much because we think it's safe. It's not so much because we think the economy needs to get going, but it's because once those are lifted, businesses no longer have to honor unemployment. If they open back up and you choose not to go, you lose your benefit. Yep. And you either can choose to go to work, potentially infect yourself and others, or go into personal bankruptcy. And it's a really shitty decision you have. Yeah, well, I like, think, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, well, like Alien, that is when we realize that, uh, you know, when it comes to all these companies that want to reopen so quickly and all this stuff, I mean, like you said, Mike, you know, you know, it, it's because of the unemployment, you know, if you don't choose to go, then, you know, you obviously don't matter. And like Alien, that's when we realize that we're all expendable. You know, it's not about us as people. Mm -hmm. You know, you can get employee of the month. You can get all these things, you know, these these trophies that say that they respect you. But at the end of the day, they they care about their money. You're expendable. And, you know, like I, I even think going back as far as like, you know, even Ripley, you know, she didn't get it until basically she was, you know, face to face with mother telling her she didn't matter. You know, like I, I read something online yesterday where there's this this kind of MAGA dude that was just like, no, reopen everything, you know, Corona's a, a lie, a myth, whatever, whatever. Then he got Corona and he's dying. Yikes. And then he's saying, he's saying, wow, I was so wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, like these people that told me all these things and these rules and these protocols and these people that said, don't worry about it and all this other stuff is a lie. And, you know, I, I hate to make aliens so political, but to be honest, there are themes political. in this movie. Yeah, it is. It is. It's actually so. the first, like I was saying, like the the first line of dialogue is like, what's our bonus? Yeah. To this movie. Yes. I mean, so Alien comes out only a few years after Watergate. It comes out a few years after Vietnam. There's tremendous civil unrest. There's this feeling that institutions cannot be trusted. Um we're still looking at our wounds over Vietnam. It's the first time that, you know, our military forces were forced to retreat against this far smaller, more entrenched opponent overall. And I think it's also telling that the same year that Alien comes out, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now hits these. Yeah. Oh, I mean, very, yeah, totally. And what's, what's interesting is, 
before I read these notes that you wrote for this episode, I didn't kind of like compare the two to each other mm-hmm. very often. I mean, it's Apocalypse Now and then it's, you know, Alien, you know, like very different films. But there are so many similarities to, to both mm-hmm. of those films. And, you know, I, I just recently revisited Apocalypse Now because it has that wonderful 4K transfer that just came out. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I, I know that, like you know like you said in the notes you know both of them kind of have ties to you know conrad's heart of darkness you know and i i I think there are quite a few Mm -hmm. similarities to both of them there's this there's this idea that the wayla nutani company is just another imperialist force that is sending its workers out and sending the worker bees out to parts unknown in order to conquer them in order to mine them for their resources because at the end of the Mm -hmm. day that's what Wayland Yutani does. Like they are strip mining LV426 for the resource, which is this alien, in order to profit off it somehow or some way. And yes. m- much like uh, Apocalypse Now, Alien is really cautioning against this idea of manifest de- destiny and the fact that all of these uncharted territories really only exist for the wealthy to pluck up and to dominate. Yes. No, totally. 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 Like aliens leans farther into that whole oh, yeah. um, evil corporation thing as where it's, despite being very, very, very on its face, it's a little bit subtle in alien. And I'm kind of mess up which version is which, but between mm-hmm. directors and theatrical, one is more ambiguous as to whether mm-hmm. or not it was a coincidence or intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still, yeah, I mean, I think when you add the prequels in, it seems like it's very intentional, but yeah, absolutely. And it's almost Mm -hmm. like in, in the cautionary vein of it all, it's almost like, yeah, the Wayland Corp sent these people out to get something and to colonize and Mm -hmm. to take something. Um, and they died, which like, Yeah. yeah. It's very imperial that, like, the soldiers that you send, these foot soldiers that you send, are the, you know, going to go to war. And what's interesting is that in Alien, like, they lose. They lose Mm -hmm. the fight in Uh Alien. They don't go and they don't quickly pick up the specimen and take over LV-426. Like, they they get slaughtered. Right. Also... It, it kind of speaks on, uh, I mean, later on, there would be the connection years later where it was kind of casually revealed that Alien and Blade Runner were in the same universes. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. I think that kind of speaks on a lot of similarities, whereas the Wayland yutani Corporation uh, is very similar to the Tyrell Corporation and Blade Runner in the, in the sense that what Tyrell did was create these, you know, robotic individuals to get their job done. And then basically they get taken care of like they're nothing. Yeah. And what Wayland Yutani does in Alien and and definitely throughout the whole series, it seems to be like a recurring theme for that company, is that they don't give a shit about the people in danger. I mean, like it says in the first film, expendable. Yeah. You know, it's it's all about the mission and whoever dies or suffers in the meantime, you know, means nothing to them as long as they achieve what they're going mm-hmm. out to do. And you know And Wayland remains untouched. Like Yeah. In, you know, when you think about, like, colonization, and in this version of it, they fail because the Xeno kicks their asses and they totally fail and do not just, like, quickly swipe and pick up what they want and take over LV-426. But Wayland doesn't get hurt. They don't lose anything. They're fine. They still get exactly what they wanted, which is 
wild. And again, the same thing in aliens, right? right? No, totally. I mean, even without jumping super into aliens, I mean, even in that first couple scenes, you know, at that briefing with, with uh, Ripley, you know, yeah. all of them, they're just like, well, you know, basically we're going to pin it on you. You destroyed a ship. We're okay. You know, <laughs> this is, you know. No, you're cool. right. Everything is not framed in terms of the human costs, but very much the monetary cost. Our ship was destroyed. We have billions of dollars invested in this colony right now. We can't just blow it up, even though it would secure everyone that's remaining safety and livelihood this installation costs too much money to destroy i actually like while watching it and i won't add too too much into this but mm -hmm. if anyone wants to for fun look up the ford pinto um case mm -hmm. and it's a really interesting legal study but essentially how ford um put a value on human life and compared that into the cost to them if they pulled the car from the market versus how many Ooh, wow. people would die and there's like a lot more to it, but it's very, it's a really, really excellent example of how, how, um, you know, without, is a really excellent example of how those types of things have to be looked at from a corporation mm -hmm. and our entire, again, I won't dive too much into it, but our entire system of how, you know, corporations mm -hmm. are paramount and here's why, and our legal system is built such that, you know, you favor the shareholder mm -hmm. no matter what. And human life does have a value if you think about how much a wrongful death suit would pay right. out or things like that. So anyway, all that to say, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Whenever I watched Alien earlier, I kind of think, well, why wouldn't they send out five ashes or six ashes? Why would they mm -hmm. only send one? Why would they let all these people die when they have all these mm -hmm. robots? And you kind of have that moment of like, the robots probably cost more. Right. It probably and costs, like, yeah. It probably costs a lot of money to create this robot that completely passes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, it's, huh. I don't, I don't think like, that, that's kind of that moment. I mean. Yeah. And I don't think that it's accidental that when alien starts, the crew of the Nostromo is literally asleep when the mm -hmm. ship changes course. Like it's not just, they're not woken up because they've heard a distress signal. When they wake up, the distress signal has been heard and the Nostromo is already en route to LV-426. Like they don't have a say in it. Like Dallas tells the crew, like, as you know, we're not, as close to home as we thought would be right now, we're actually on this new path and the rest of the crew is kind of stunned. Um, mm -hmm. So they have absolutely no agency in the choice whatsoever. Like they're on this path, whether they like it or not. Yeah. Spooky. It's really spooky. <laughs> and I think Ash's description of the xenomorph is kind of this perfect metaphor for capitalism. Ash, can you hear me? Ash! Yes, I can hear you. What was your special order? You read it. I thought it was clear. What was it? Bring back life form, priority one, all other priorities rescinded. There's a damn company. What about our lives, you son of a bitch? I repeat, all other priorities are rescinded. How do we kill it, Ash? There's gotta be a way of killing it. How, how do we do it? You can't. Bullshit. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? 
perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. A survivor. And all clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Look, I I've heard enough of this, and I'm asking you to pull the plug. Last word. I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. A better sure. metaphor for the crushing wheel of capitalism? I don't know what there would be at that point. So good. <laughs> yeah. Everything yeah. about this, and I think it's part of why this movie, it still um, resonates to this day, is because... There's just so, and it stinks that nothing has really changed in 40 years. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's gotten much worse and it keeps tilting in the direction of the elites. But man, it's it's all spelled out right there for well, us. Well, I, I think even more than just resonating still today, I think it, it, it rings true even more today. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this existence that we're all living in, and feeling completely alone because mm-hmm. the the uh, government and the uh, the institutions that are, are meant to protect us and guide us mm-hmm. are in in I mean for all intents and purposes are Wayland Yutani in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, yeah. like these are the people that are supposed to guide us and they're telling us, Oh, don't even worry about it. They're not giving a shit about like really important things like masks and social distancing, which like until the White House is mm-hmm. infected, you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I, I think if anything, Alien, like I said, it, I think it's more relevant today than it ever has been. Mm-hmm. I mean, with, again, without diving headfirst into names that are going to blow up our spots, but like, let's look at, you know, yeah, we want to thank government, but if we want to talk Wayland Corp, look at Elon Musk. He's like, yeah. open this back up, guys. Everyone back to work. Mm-hmm. Like, look at Bezos being like, no unionizing, no hazard pay or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't want to go too far into this, you know, whatever. But that's, that's okay. Wayland. Go as far as right? you want. You know, like there- that's Wayland, that you're expendable. This is like, this um, pandemic is a massive opportunity for Amazon because mm-hmm. everything is going to be shipped now because no mm-hmm. one wants to go anywhere. It's a right. massive business opportunity. And leave it to Wayland, leave it to Bezos to be like, mm-hmm. dope. Let's get more people in this right. warehouse. Let's turn it up. There's a depression, and I'm about to become the world's first trillionaire. Right. Like, that's that's no, Wayland, man. You're, you, you're right. You're right you, 100%. I mean, as we were recording this, and as you were saying that right now, I heard my, my front door knock, and it was Amazon. So, and mm-hmm. you need it. Yeah, totally. You're right. Yeah, so it's wild. Like, the, you, like yeah, so the Xenomorph is a business opportunity for right. Wayland. It is a threat to the entire crew of the Nostromo, mm-hmm. but it's a business opportunity for them, and they're going to take that opportunity. You saw it in the way that the Defense Production Act was used, where in the early days of the pandemic, in February and March, when there was this real need for... PPE gear for masks, mm. for ventilators. We had an opportunity as, as the administration had an opportunity to order businesses to 
make this equipment and make this gear. And yet our administration refused to do it and actually came out and said, well, we trust corporations to know what we, what they need to do more so than us telling it, you know, Mm -hmm. but when the time came when the meatpacking plants started to shut down because of these conditions that really haven't changed much since Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle. When you have people that are working side by side and meat falling on the floor and no one is washing their hands, no one has protective gear, no one has even gloves at this point. And they're saying, look, we're not going in. And basically meat houses have become a breeding ground for this this virus like that's where the highest concentration of the virus spreading is aside from prisons in a lot of cases and nursing homes when those shut down that's when the defense production act was put into place like no we are ordering these places opened up again so you Mm -hmm. again you're just seeing whose interests are being protected over and over vanity fair just ran an article yesterday on wall street says the economy needs to open up and if people are going to die so be it yeah yeah like yeah that's what you know again the cost of human life which is something Mm -hmm. that you know you can look at and again there's a hundred rabbit holes we could go down but you know you're you know anyway but uh yeah like the the cost of human life versus the economy and how important the economy Mm -hmm. is and there's no you know it's a myth that you can step back and you know fix you know vote with your wallet like all of us here could talk shit or i don't know if you guys can swear on this podcast uh we could talk shit about uh, bezos okay i was like um you talk shit about bezos all night but we all have probably made an amazon purchase because we had to Mm -hmm. or like because it makes the most sense there's nothing that i can do to stop amazon i deleted my amazon account who cares you know many other apps that i have that Mm -hmm. run on amazon web services everything i use there's nothing i can do to stop it and it's not until there's like, you know, intervention. Right. Anyway, whatever. I'm not going to like get down this like we need government intervention, even, capitalism. Even, branch, but. <laughs> like, even if you did drop Amazon, what, you know, when you look at the, the other alternative, like Walmart, not exactly a great alternative, you know? Yeah. Like, what um, are you going to do? Right? So. so it becomes difficult. All right. So yeah, Let's, the Wayland comparison is very relevant currently is what so, I, is where I was yeah. trying to go. <laughs> so let's pivot from one to- uh, fun topic about how capitalism is going to destroy us all to another fun <laughs> one, which is the allegories oh, of like, let's now talk about the allegories for rape, sexual assault. And you know, it's funny. And, and I, I, I don't mean to this say what's funny. It's talking about rape and sexual assault. Mm-hmm. But what I mean is like, I was just about to say, let's talk about the chest bursting scene. Right. Let's do that. So not to make light of it. Everyone's favorite scene. It is. So it's this my is second favorite. What's your first favorite? My favorite scene. I, well, I don't want to steer. Well, whatever. No, you know, okay. we can talk about things out of order. Chester's scene gets a lot of play. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's an excellent, incredible scene. Uh, I love the scene of Brett looking for Jonesy. I think that's mm. the best oh, scene in the movie. So good, so good. I right, like I love it because Brett doesn't like Brett's kind of in the middle, right? Like he's your like blue collar worker who's like a little concerned, but he's not a concerned as everybody else. He's still mm-hmm. kind of like chill. He's the guy who's like smoking or whatever. And he's much more relaxed and he's just looking for this cat and he goes alone. It's really quiet. You almost hear like a fan that sounds like a heartbeat, maybe some like dripping water, but there's not a lot of score. He's not really talking. He says Jones every so often. And I think my favorite part is when he picks up that like pile of skin. Yeah. And he doesn't even think about it for a second. He looks at it and he drops it because, and like that moment of him looking at the skin and dropping it, he looks at it and drops it, 
because he doesn't care. It doesn't bother him, upset him, or phase him at all. Everyone's obsessed about collecting specimens, and he got, like, a perfect one and just chucked it in a vent. He didn't care at all. Mm-hmm. So you learn so much about him in that moment. But then at the same time, by seeing that pile of skin, you know this thing is growing bigger mm-hmm. and very quickly. It's been 20 minutes, and it's already shed mm-hmm. its skin. So it's, it's bigger already. And it's happening fast. And then he just like walks through this like dark, spooky, drippy, chainy ship. Mm-hmm. And that's that like first moment that you see the Xeno. I think it's the first reveal of the Xenomorph. It is. And you don't even really see the whole thing. You kind of just see mm-hmm. its face and it's like double stacked teeth. And like, oh my God. And he barely even screams. He gets in like part of a scream. It's mm-hmm. not bloody. You don't see body parts flying around. You don't hear shrieks. It's just like, Oh shit, that thing grew real fast. Right. Brett didn't care, and now he's definitely dead. And Harry Dean Stanton does a wonderful bit of acting in that when he does, when he, for, we know that this thing is shedding and growing really fast. And at first, he, he looks a little confused. And then when that, when it dawns on him exactly what's happened, he has like a one second, oh shit moment. And it's just mm-hmm. a, a wonderful bit of acting that's all done through his face at that time. Oh, absolutely. You know, can't fault you if that's your favorite scene. But there's oh gonna my get God. It. It's no disrespect to the chest mm-hmm. burster. I just well, was like, we talk about the chest burster a lot and we really skip over that scene. What's great about it. it too, when the crew went to Scott and said, why is it raining in here? Like it absolutely would not <laughs> be raining. His response was, oh, it looks cool. Oh like my it god! It yeah. looks really cool, and sometimes <laughs> that's what you have to do. You just have to say, "Fuck it, it looks cool." That's my yeah. like go-to example because, like, I'm a nitpicker. Like, mm-hmm. that's not a secret. I love nitpick nonsense, mm-hmm. but that's my go-to example of like the difference between a continuity error and a stylistic mm-hmm. choice. I'm not coming for that movie for not appropriately thinking about the science as to mm-hmm. why there'd be condensation inside the ship or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Because it was a style choice. That's not the same thing as like a mistake. So that's my that's like my go to example of like I'm not a I'm not an asshole, okay? Mm-hmm. But I am gonna pick apart your bad continuity. Like yeah, mm-hmm. I'll mention that it goes from day to night very quickly in Batman Begins. I'm allowed to do that, mm-hmm. but I'm not coming for the dripping water <laughs> <laughs> in Alien. It works yeah, so well. Here's, you know, what's, here's uh, the question I want to pose about the mm-hmm. chest bursting scene and the face hugging scene. If it's Veronica Cartwright's Lambert instead of John Hurt's Kane. Does Alien retain its status 40 plus years? You know, I, I think no. Because what Alien does, I mean, at least in my opinion, is even before getting into like the rapes of sexual assault and that kind of stuff that we're presented with, uh, what Alien does is it's kind of welcoming in the beginning. And it slowly, slowly starts getting tighter and tighter Mm-hmm. Until, you know, you get to the LV era and it feels very uncomfortable and it gets worse and worse. And beginning with the facehugger scene, we are put into this, this section. From there on out, the movie gets tighter and tighter to where we're very claustrophobic and we're having to deal with the aftermath of what happens. And I, I feel like the fact that it was Kane makes us as viewers, like, pay attention and deal with things that we're not used to dealing with. And that speaks volumes on how mm. not casual that that sexual assault is among women, but the fact that like society, like you know what I mean, like like in how women, we expect 
in a movie mm-hmm. versus exactly yeah. exactly you know and I, I feel like i feel like the fact that it is kane makes us examine the fact that you know it makes us so uncomfortable but you know what every sexual assault makes us uncomfortable we should feel so uncomfortable watching films with with females to get sexual uh, mm-hmm. sexually assaulted because they it happens more with females than it does men by far yeah for sure it's yeah like um it's definitely something that i always am like ugh about i think that like there are so many movies that are otherwise so excellent where they throw in a sexual assault scene that like didn't have to happen i don't want to spoil a bunch of movies for people but there'll be like movies that have so many one that i watched very recently that I would otherwise have told you was excellent, but like just randomly in the scene, a character who's supposed to be someone's child mm-hmm. um, assaults her and it has like nothing to do with, like it didn't have to happen at all. Mm-hmm. And it's just like that go-to, like this villain's bad. Another right. one is in, um, and again, a movie that I really love, Overlord. Yeah. Nazi has to like rape the chick. And I'm like, he's already mm-hmm. a Nazi. Like I know right. he's the bad guy. <laughs> like, right. He's a Nazi. Like, I know he, you don't have to give me any other information to show me that he's bad. So I definitely mm-hmm. hate um, the like unnecessary sex assault. And I think you're right that like it, it is true that to me as someone who looks for the unnecessary sexual assault, I find it very jarring. But I think for a lot of people, it's just very mm-hmm. much no big deal. So I think your point, well, yeah, I see your point that like it's so much more jarring to see it happen to a guy, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Well, that ends, I mean, point? I, I'm, I'm also somebody that kind of looks at that stuff and be like, well, what's the point of that? I mean, when yeah. we have films like, when we have films like Nirzarki's I Spit on Your Grave, I, yeah. I, I understand that. Like it, it makes me uncomfortable, obviously, because I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a survivor of sexual assault too. You yeah, know, it, it, it makes... Yeah. It makes you know anyone that's dealt with that uncomfortable. For but sure. the fact that we have two and three, and we've made a whole franchise of that shit based on like, oh, here's a franchise where you know someone's mm-hmm. gonna get raped in this movie. That's fucking disgusting. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like that totally. doesn't sit well with me at all. Right. I yeah, totally. Like I think again, without veering off into too many other mm-hmm. topics, but I ended up. Um, what year is it? It might have been at the beginning of this lockdown, or it might have just before. I caught up on all of uh, Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, mm. and I don't know if you guys are caught up on it and I liked the first season but like I really was like and you guys spicy hot take okay careful with yourself um, it really is just like torture porn disguised as yeah. feminism mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's it very much is like purporting to be a feminist which I, it, it is it touches along you know it is but like my god once an episode every guy she meets which i guess is probably trying to like drive home that like this is how bad brain Mm -hmm. culture is especially in this world but like my god you could imply this or like you know if you had her walk into a as soon as she gets into a hotel room with a man i know exactly what's about to happen to her i don't need to see it and so yeah um yeah to your point that like yeah wow it is treated super casually yeah and when you see it here and i think one of the beauties of horror and it's something that I'm trying to write about now is like one way that horror can really help us understand the world is it can really help develop our sense of empathy overall yeah. because there are you know we had I had said earlier like this idea that I go about every day thinking well nothing truly bad can happen and both of you guys said well actually here's how we see the world but <laughs> yeah, I think that's like, well- a but that's a wonderful thing, by the way. Like, that's the kind of thing that you can listen to, you can reflect on and go, yeah, you're right. So yeah. having this, having John Hurt be basically forcibly assaulted 
and raped. And the image is like this protruding over, this, this protrusion goes right down his throat and plants its egg and its seed right inside of him and doesn't get, and then it attaches itself to make it even more insidious. It not only impregnates him, but it attaches itself to him and it won't let go. And yeah. if you try to take it off of him, it spits acid and will kill you and kill the host at that point rather than let go. It would rather die and take everyone along with him or mm -hmm. with it than let it go at that point. Um, it makes you, it makes the viewer as a man. And O'Bannon was very conscious of this. Although he wrote the script to be kind of unisex in any character, could be any gender, he later on would say it was really important to me that it was a male being impregnant because I wanted men to look at that and confront that reality of what others go through overall and make it that much more insidious and make them that much more uncomfortable. And if they don't like it, fuck it. Like that's their problem. It's well, so we should be, yeah. you know, yeah. no, 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 I was just briefly, you know, we should be uncomfortable with this shit. You know what I mean? And you know, any, unfortunately, anytime I, I speak up on things like, I don't know, the Black Christmas remake or anything that, you know, is female driven or have these ideas that we should pay more attention to female, you know, characters and that stuff. Unfortunately, I get bombarded with bullshit. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we, we need to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And without going back to the Twitter shit, because I'm not going to, uh, we need to be uncomfortable. We need to be challenged to see what other people go through. Because how do we grow as people if we don't address what other people different, you know, aside from us, that we go through? You know what I mean? Like, that's sure. important as far as growth as a human being. And I think Alien really shows that. Yeah, like, progress isn't easy. Like, everything you're just saying about it being progress isn't easy you know it's never going to be like here's my perspective and everyone's going to be like, great i accept um that's never how it goes and i think it really um two two big points that i i would say based on this like first um this goes to show you that like you can have a scene like that with intention and with purpose i'm not saying that you can never portray certain mm -hmm. crimes or certain bad things in movies because they're bad and i don't want to see them it's about doing it with intention and being delicate about something it's it's very different than portraying it again like my beef with handmaid's tale having unnecessary rape is not the same thing as the the scene in alien mm -hmm. the other piece is like back on our how like our worldviews are so different I saw Alien a hundred times before it even occurred to me that it was a sexual assault. Mm -hmm. It didn't, I didn't feel that at all. But then when I watched Prometheus, and I'm, by, this, by this point I already, by the time I saw Prometheus, I understood that in Alien. But by the time I got to Prometheus, and it's Shaw, and uh, is it David puts it in the boyfriend's drink? Yes. and then yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't remember the boyfriend's name. Yikes. Not Tom Hardly, as they say. Um, yes. So oh, Poor Logan Marshall Green. Oh. <laughs> JK, JK, JK. <laughs> He's great. He's great. Um, uh, yeah, so David gives it to Logan Marshall Green's character who has sex with Shaw and she's impregnated with the uh, alien that way. That, I was like, oh, like, yeah, I totally get it. And she mm -hmm. wants to, like, cut it out of her which is mm -hmm. a whole other um a whole other discussion but yeah like at that point i was like oh yeah totally and it really speaks to, like my worldview compared to yours that i was like oh it's just this thing that latched onto his face and mm -hmm. threw an alien inside of him that didn't like that didn't land with me at all is the same sort of thing as like the violations i'm used to seeing in movies so things that, like are, it's just like another well and then to follow up to carry through the that impregnate that pregnancy 
trope all the way to the end where it bursts out of his chest yeah. at that point and this like really violent metaphor for horrific birth overall and yeah. the way it's it's framed and i love like um jerry i know you're a huge fan of Ad, Ad, adam egypt mortimer and daniel yeah, yeah. and he speaks pretty in depth about the way the chestburster scene is framed in alien origin and it's really wonderful how he talks about number one how they're all kind of talking over one another and there's a sense of family and the, the evil has passed at that point he compares it to a mammoth scene um, overall this really natural way of speaking and as a viewer you're kind of forced to pick out which pieces of dialogue you focus on um, mm-hmm. but then to go from that to and I love again Ian Holmes acting these little blink and you'll miss it moments but there are a couple instances where it cuts to him and he's separate from everyone else it's just off center of the frame and he goes from smiling, but then he just starts watching. He knows. Yeah. He's, He's waiting. Watching that. Mm-hmm. It's, I, it's very much a, it's a prototype for David in so many mm-hmm. ways, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. I never picked up on that until watching it on Alien Day back in April. I mm-hmm. never caught that little bit of acting. I'm like, this motherfucker knows. And he I love that. He watches it like gleefully. Mm-hmm. He's almost got like, and it's wild because he's supposed to be a droid, which is amazing mm-hmm. that like his his face is so well mm-hmm. acted. But like, yeah, he's looking at him. He senses danger, but he stands far away. And for him, this danger is a good thing. Like he mm. is gleefully watching this happen. Mm-hmm. No, totally. And and even like me saying like the prototype for David, I mean, even in Prometheus, not jumping ahead yeah. to that episode because that's a whole episode to deal with. <laughs> but I mean, there's so many little uh, instances with David and uh, Logan Marshall Green's character where David kind of has this kind of gleeful, almost like mischievous look like, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, keep talking shit. I yep. know it's going to happen to you in one scene or two. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's yeah. it's interesting. I can't wait to talk about David because he just does things to see. He's like this agent of chaos. He's like, I wonder what would happen if, and then he just does it. Like there's really, there's, there's, that's his whole reason to be. He's like very, he's like a child that's experimenting and it's really wonderful. I love like, I think again, a whole other subject. David's a really cool example of how prequels, the difference between like a prequel and a movie that happens first, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. Nope. Like a, one of the things I always think about is like the Star Trek technology. Like when you make a Star Trek movie mm-hmm. now, even if it happened in the past, you know, how do you update the technology, but also make it older? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you make it believable for our version? Like the, anyway, whatever. But, I know what you mean. Yeah. So David is such a cool example of that. Cause like you even just said a few seconds ago, that like Ash is a prototype for David, but David mm-hmm. happened first. And it's true. Yeah. Ash is a prototype of David, but David happened first and Ash is later. And that's just like such an interesting example. Like that totally. amplifies the like prequel mm-hmm. formula. It's so cool. And even like the naming convention, like mm-hmm. the ABCD situation. Yeah. So by the time we get to mm-hmm. David, it's like, he's the later one. Well, it's, was first. <laughs> and it's almost like by the time you get to Ash, or you think of like the alien timeline, yeah, that you would know like, hey, wait a minute, David really fucked things up for us. So when we go ahead and design the next android off the assembly line, we need to remove choice from it. Like it can really only obey the directive that we give it overall. David um, goes off the rails. Really does. <laughs> uh, I really can't wait to talk Prometheus. I just oh, think it's fascinating. I have one, I have one oh, Logan good. Marshall Green um, confession to make. Okay. When I watched Upgrade, I'm like, I had no idea Tom Hardy was in this. I went the whole movie <laughs> thinking that was Tom okay. Hardy. 
<laughs> Again, without without continuing to bring up other media, mm-hmm. tell me that like Upgrade and Venom aren't very similar movies, <laughs> acted by are. very similar actors. Mm-hmm. Like again, the Tom Hardy thing. I was like, oh, Venom is Upgrade, but this time it's Tom Hardy. Mm-hmm. I um, could totally see that, but I think for me, like I was such a huge fan of the OC, which is kind of embarrassing to say. That's not embarrassing. That, like, got their that, that when you know Logan Marshall Green came out with all these movies, I was like, oh, cool. I recognize that dude mm-hmm. from that. So, like, I mean, I didn't I'm know where I was going Honestly, just joking. Logan Marshall Green is no, 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 great. No, no. That is not, I'm not. No, no, I, I totally, yeah. the first Look. time I saw Prometheus, I thought it was Tom Hardy, too. Look, uh, you're, if you're a poor man's Tom Hardy, you're still yeah, based on Tom Hardy, okay? Yeah, there are you know? worse things to be the poor man's version it's of. Not like no, but what's, you know, what's funny is I thought that poor man's first. Larry the Cable guy, you know? I totally yes. thought that at first. It's like, you know, yeah, I recognize the guy from the OC, but he kind of seems like the poor man's Tom Hardy. But mm-hmm. after, like, The Invitation and other movies, I kind of, like, switched that whole mentality, mm-hmm. to be honest. They're very, they're they're different. It's just like funny that they're so often mixed up. Oh, totally. When Upgrade and Venom came out, I was like, I, Lol. I 100% thought it was Tom Hardy. And I love Upgrade. Yeah, I did not know. <laughs> um, you look very similar, especially when they have facial hair. I mean, it's just it? the jarring accent that you're like, oh, whoa, I didn't realize mm-hmm. that he could do a convincing American accent because Tom oh. Hardy cannot, everyone. Oh, that's funny. But I, even like, even talking about like the whole David thing and the Ash thing, like I, I remember when Prometheus was announced, people were like, "Oh no! Like, is this a, a prequel to Alien?" And then yeah. they were like, "No, it's a prequel to a prequel to Alien." Mm-hmm. Oh my god! And that instantly like it annoyed the hell out of me at first. Oh my god, I was so then, that's like that's the type of nonsense I like. But yeah, go on. Right? No, totally. It annoyed the hell out of me at first, but then I thought like, oh "My God, there's so much story to be told." And it is it is interesting to think about David was so just like such a intense character as far as like he just wanted to watch everything just get destroyed and see what he can do with it and then we have all these years between that film and alien and to where we get to ash kind of speaking on what you said earlier you know ash is kind of like the david without you know as as far as you know emotion and that kind of stuff like choice and stuff so it's just interesting i thought it was really interesting how in the director's cut of prometheus they brought in michael kane just to say some people like to watch the world burn (laughs) (laughs) so oh man all right let's reel this thing back in for a sec here sorry about that um okay so you know, other instances, when I watched it, one of the um, points that came up when I was watching Origin makes sense. Uh, one of the talkers, Clark Wolf, she brought up the point of Ash being programmed with built-in misogyny. That oh, totally. She, he very much will not listen to anything that she says. And his final act when he tries to kill her is to try to penetrate her. Over. Uh, but huh. when he talks to Dallas, he always defers to Dallas, even if it means his mission won't get accomplished. When Dallas yeah. says, cut this thing off him, Ash stops arguing and says, well, do you take responsibility? When Dallas does, he's like, great. And he cuts it off. There's no further argument at that point. When yeah. it comes to Ripley, he consistently undercuts her. He consistently scolds her and he consistently belittles her areas of expertise. Over. There's a moment um gosh i watched it like earlier today Mm -hmm. but that always really stuck out for me when ripley is uh so i guess it's after dallas dies or so they think Mm -hmm. and um ripley is trying to tell them like what they need to do in her new plan Mm -hmm. and ripley starts to yell Mm -hmm. 
So everyone just keeps talking over Ripley and that's what she's used to. She never mm-hmm. gets a word in every time she's like, no, this is, you know, I don't want to do that. People just bark orders at her mm-hmm. and she complies. And in this moment, there's like, it's a shot. Like it's her and uh, Ash is in like the background and she's facing forwards and she just, everyone's telling her what to do. And she just starts to yell, this is the plan. Mm-hmm. Everybody listen to me. And like that moment sticks out to me so much of just like how many times have I been sitting somewhere where I said something someone talks over me do they don't let you finish your thought and all you want to do is just like scream on top of them because that's Mm -hmm. the only way they're gonna hear and yeah that's what she has to do like Ash is not listening to her she is in charge now she is the person who's who gets to make these decisions and Ash isn't listening Mm -hmm. so she's just like shut up Ash Mm -hmm. here's what's gonna happen I love that I love that moment dealing with Parker also getting increasingly belligerent and yelling at her until she puts him in his place and I guess that that was born out of a lot of real tension that was going on in the background especially between Weaver and Yafit Koto where he would really increase his agitation towards her in between takes and really get in her face and eventually like Weaver who I think is like her first or second film role rose to the occasion but a lot of the tension between Parker and Ripley was born out of like real life tension between Weaver and uh, Yafit Koto as well. Well there's there's even that stuff that I mean you put in the notes and I mean yeah definitely Mm -hmm. I mean there's that there's that moment during filming where you know Ridley Scott didn't feel like he was getting what he needed from everybody Mm -hmm. you know so he pulled Sigourney Weaver aside and basically like return new asshole Mm -hmm. and like really messed her up you know right and then like you know later on basically apologized it's like oh you know i was really upset with john hurt but i didn't feel like i could Mm -hmm. yell at him the same way like (laughs) like how shitty is that right so so even in this you know when we talk a lot of times we talk about alien we talk about it being this really egalitarian movie like where there's this equality between the sexes and they were written to be unisex and ripley is obviously this very strong character or fully developed character in a ways that a lot of other final girls never are but at the same time there's this misogyny that is still built into the world of alien it recognizes that just like capitalism some things are just so baked into the dna of humanity at this point will it ever really go away yeah, mm-hmm. kind of like a grim tale of the future mm-hmm. where a woman still has to scream to be heard as wild. Well, the but, thing is, like, you know, they talk over they talk over a woman into where, like, she feels like she has to scream to be heard. Mm-hmm. And then in real life, when she screams to finally be heard, then they label her problematic as a person. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you think of it, Lambert is the one that has the best plan out of any of them. Lambert's yeah. idea is like, let's just get the fuck out of here. Like, why are we talking about killing it? Like, why don't we just get in the little shuttle and go? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's shouted. And she's not that she's shouted down, but she's dismissed immediately because, oh, she's crying. She's yelling. She's hysterical. Like, no one pay attention to her. She's being a little bit emotional right now. Yeah. Yeah, she's so emotional, even though, like, she just watched her, what's his time, I mean, that captain, mm-hmm. um, get, like, slaughtered by an alien being that's mm-hmm. on their ship who right. killed two friends in front of them, and she's upset, right. and they're like, oh, this woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, wild. yeah, women, man. Women, man. Can't they handle a chest <laughs> yeah. burster in one slaughtering? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, even so, Lambert, like, how does she die? I mean, come on, like, if that's not... Yeah. 
mm-hmm. know what I mean? Metaphorical in some ways. I right. don't know what it is. Yeah, man. Yeah, there are some serious implications there that go on uh, with that scene. It's, it's, and I think like when we'll talk a little bit later on about some of the differences between the, the uh, theatrical and director's cut that came out with the box set, but some of where it takes what happens to the crew is really, actually, let's do that now. Let's maybe let's, chat about that. For it. Under really yeah, there, after but, it. Yeah, um, yeah. Scroll down a little bit here. Yeah. I brought a few up kind of throughout, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, there are so, some good ones. So what is different in the director's cut about the fate of the Nostromo compared to what we see happen in the action, in the, um, theatrical film the fate of the nostromo specifically i don't think changes okay Mm -hmm. yeah uh one of the biggest ones i think the most famous difference between the two is that in the end of the director's cut so it was released in 2003 i believe Mm -hmm. um when ripley is kind of you know cleaning up she comes across dallas um glued to the wall and it looks like he's kind of being like harvested for eggs perhaps. Mm -hmm. And that's an image that like will come up in like later sequels, prequels, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it really changes the Xeno canon, I think, from Mm -hmm. is this alien a killer? Is all this thing does kill? Or is this alien keeping its prey alive for other sinister intentional purposes? Mm -hmm. So we tend to look Mm -hmm. at monsters in movies very much as like they're killers. That's what they do. It's a monster and it kills, but this suggests that there's a little bit more to it, which kind of comes up later when you're starting, like in aliens, you're starting to view the alien as a mother. Um, And that kind of comes from that. So I think that's one of the biggest differences. And he basically begs uh, for death. It's very scary. Um, yeah, and then, I don't know, that to me I think is like the biggest, biggest change. And then uh, we talked a bit about the, uh, the raising the weapon when Kane sees the eggs. I think that's mm-hmm. a huge one. Um, and then the other one is just the conversations that happen between um, Ash and uh, Dallas are changed. Oh, sorry, about Ash between Dallas and um, Ripley are changed. So Ripley starts to question what's up with Ash. And Dallas tells her, like, honestly, I've never seen this guy in my life. I went on 20 missions with mm-hmm. someone else and I switched him last second. And that starts to suggest to you that this was intentional, that Wayland changed him to Ash because he, they had yes. other intentions versus yeah. he was just an extra. Uh, an extra mm-hmm. guy it starts to so the to me the director's cut makes it more ambiguous as to whether Waylon knew mm-hmm. what was going on and to me it's it's also a sign that who does dallas trust like dallas trusts this person that he's never met before as opposed to this person that i think that there's an implied history between dallas and ripley and yet yeah. he immediately really just discounts any of her knowledge and her expertise and says, well, he's the science guy. I just run the ship, even though he doesn't really know what his motives are. He's never met him before. And doesn't, he just doesn't question them at all. Yeah. Right. It's also interesting. I, and I think this is like a recurring thing as, you know, just for me with not only alien, but a lot of the alien films is the director's cut, even aliens, the director's cut of alien and aliens both have, things that I wish would have been in the theatrical and things that I'm glad they didn't put in the theatrical. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I, I like some of the stuff in the director's cut of this one. I, me personally, I'm glad, like I, I'm happier not seeing what happened to Dallas, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I think some of the conversations in the director's cut, I kind of wish would be in there just like yeah. in aliens. I mean, man, it's a gut punch to know that Ripley had a daughter and she ended up 
dying in that mm-hmm. time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I think it's it's kind of like a pick and choose as far as you know what mm-hmm. parts of the director's cut I kind of wish were in it. Yeah, I mean, I won't. I save it for your. I'll save it for you. Save it for your aliens episode. But I actually, um, I don't like the Ripley's daughter thing because mm-hmm. I feel like um, what I really like about, I mean. You know, Cameron really made it clear that Aliens and T2 were both mother stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love the idea that Ripley is a mother, not just because she gave birth. And I feel like the story about her having a daughter that died kind of shoehorns in this idea that now she's a real mother. Otherwise, mm-hmm. if she was just kind of a mother. And I kind mm-hmm. of liked it better. We're like, no, nah, she can be a mom. There's a million ways to be a mom. Mm-hmm. You know? Totally. I don't know. That's just like that. a random thing. But no, it's not like it's something. A... It's not like a hill I would die on, but I'm just like, you know, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that's a good point. I think that's a really good point too. Cause I know we just had mother's day a yeah. week ago and I know for a lot of, for some people, like I'm really fortunate. Like I've had like a very strong relationship with my mom. And if I said differently, she would tell me off. Um, <laughs> I would be, I would be ground. I'm 45, but I'd still. Mine too. Love you, mom. Yeah. Love you, mom. <laughs> um, but I know a lot of people who haven't had that kind of relationship. And yeah have gotten like that mother figure elsewhere or who maybe don't have biological children, but maybe through the work they do, maybe through teaching, maybe through volunteer work, or maybe just by taking people under their wing, they provide um, that kind of mothering figure um, that very much is important. So yeah, I like didn't feel like Ripley needed to lose a daughter to gain a daughter. Right. But Mm -hmm. again, it's not something I'm obsessed with. It's just like one of those things I was kind of like, I didn't need that. So now I think it's a good time to maybe talk about Ripley a little bit more. Ripley, my queen, my goddess, Um, my love. So I'm going to say maybe one thing and get out of the way for a few minutes. I think like what struck me the more I'm watching the series is the Ripley in Alien versus the Ripley that I think is in our heads from pop culture is very different. That I think the Ripley we think of is the one that James Cameron kind of molded. You know, she's wielding that... um, flamethrower and machine gun and she's wearing like the mechanical suit and punching the uh xenomorph queen like square in the face screaming get away from her you bitch that's who we think of this ripley is not until the end she's not always assured of what she's doing she's a little bit more compliant she's very contemplative she's very intelligent she's always thinking but she's not this rah-rah like sigourney weaver says in aliens I was Rambolina. I was basically like Stallone uh, in Rambo at this point. And this is yeah. not the image in this movie. Yeah, Ripley goes on a journey for sure. Um, two things, like I think with that, you know, obviously you can't not mention James Cameron and what he did with these two characters, but the Sarah Connor journey is very similar. Like the Sarah Connor that we know and think about is not the Sarah Connor from Terminator, who's a completely different person who's completely changed by her events. And that's the same with Ripley. At the end of Alien, I mean, Rip does wield the flamethrower in Alien. She calls the Xeno a bitch mm-hmm. in Alien, which I feel like everyone, like, I mean, let's stay away from her freaking bitch, but, like, obviously iconic, but there's, she does call it a bitch in the first one, and, which I, that's amazing, um, and, yeah, so Ripley definitely changes a lot, but you're right, like, the version of her is the changed one, and, like, again, I don't know why I'm still thinking about Friday the 13th, but, like, look at Jason. He didn't even exist for an entire movie. So, well, sort of. And it's just wild that like the entire, yeah, exactly like you said, like the version of her in our heads is the James Cameron Ripley. Well, even, I mean, 2018's Halloween, I remember during the press junket, 
uh, side of that. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, yeah. some, someone made the mistake of saying, oh man, you know, Lori's back. She's a badass. And she yeah. kind of took him to task over that saying, no, she's not a badass no, at all. She's not, yeah. You know, she's a survivor and she's doing what she can to survive. And I, I think that that's the Ripleyan alien, you know, like she's the smartest person in that whole movie. She's yeah. the one that uses her brain. She's the one that just thinks of ways to get rid of it. And, you know, there are a few moments where, you know, maybe she took uh, a different direction that she should have, you know, but like, I, I think the Ripleyan alien, I, I prefer that version, you know, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like aliens, but like, you know, like it's such a different it's such a different take on the character, I think. And I, I, I love the way that she portrayed him. Yeah. And I think like it is a natural progression though. Like, yeah, I love the way she's portrayed in this movie too, but it wouldn't make any sense for her to be the same mm-hmm. no, totally, in Aliens. Totally. And exactly the same as like Sarah Connor. I mean, it's hard to remember, the, like I said, it's hard to remember the first time we saw these movies, but the last you saw Sarah Connor at the end of Terminator, she was like in a skirt, having a pretty bad day with a high-pitched voice, and she partied mm-hmm. with her friends, and, you know, went on bad dates, and sometimes went to the club. Got and, ice cream in her pocket. Yeah, <laughs> and then <laughs> the next time you see her, she's doing pull-ups in a, in like a ward, in a private room in a psych ward. And she's jacked with a low ponytail plotting her escape. Like, that is not the same woman you left behind. And I feel like that's really the same with Rip. Like, mm-hmm. it happens a little bit sooner. Although, I guess not really, because the final scene in Terminator is pretty similar to the final scene in Alien. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ha- like, she goes through, like, there is a marked departure from who Ripley is. Her life changes in the moment. I mean, it doesn't even just change when she's attacked by the chest burster. Or when her friends start to die, her moment is when she sees that screen say crew expendable. And Mm -hmm. she's like, oh shit, I got to fight for myself. And I'm about to pick up a flamethrower, maybe incinerate my own captain and shoot an alien out of an airlock while blowing up a ship. Like she is brand. That's a day. That (laughs) and I mean, I I also think that an alien is is necessary, you know, because by aliens and, you know, I don't want to spend too much time. But in Aliens, she's been through this. She knows exactly what the hell's coming her way. So yeah, hell yeah, she's gonna like you know blow it away as much. Yeah. So I, I I think that that's it's very necessary for sure. I think it's great too that even though she brings a very different energy in Alien versus the other films, she's still very assertive. It's just totally. done in a very different way. Like she totally. has this moral compass. Like when Kane is brought back to the Nostromo after the face hugger is planted on him, she's the one that says, wait a minute. And she doesn't say no right away. She's like, wait a minute, let's talk this through for a minute. You know the quarantine procedure. And when they say he might die if we don't bring him on, she's saying, well, I need to think about everybody. I can't just make this emotional decision about Kane. I really need to think about every single person right now. Um, And she turns from a Spock to a Kirk. Right, very quickly. And she's... (laughs) Um, you know, and she's not afraid to make that call and she's not afraid to tell Dallas no. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not motivated by any personal decision. It's motivated by protecting everybody else and knowing that's the right thing to do. When Ash overrides her, she doesn't have any problem confronting him about it. And she doesn't do it in a way that's full of bluster. She doesn't do it in a way that's showy. And she doesn't even 
do it in front of the rest of the crew. She pulls him aside and she makes her point. She doesn't grandstand. She says, and she questions him, why would you do this? You know the procedure, you know the quarantine. You're a science officer. Surely you've encountered this. And it's Ash that's making this emotional case for letting him on, even though we kind of learned that's really a cover story for him. But Ripley is very much rooted in like, this is the right way to do it. Not just because it's procedure, but also because it protects everybody's. Yeah. Totally. Yes. How do you think Ripley, I mean, I think obviously the answer is very high, but how does Ripley stack up against kind of like the bevy of other final girls? Whoa. I mean. <laughs> top 50, somewhere in the top 50. <laughs> top five, Ripley, maybe? yeah, is one of my favorite characters of all time. I love Ripley mm-hmm. so much. Um, I call her Rip because we're like buds, so mm-hmm. I can call her Rip. Um <laughs> Yeah, I love Rip. And yeah, she's obviously a final girl in what is very much a slasher formula film. For some reason, I just like never, she always slits my mind when I think of final girls. Like as soon as someone says, who's your favorite final girl, I immediately start thinking of uh, Sydney and Nancy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, like, Sid and Nancy. Um, And uh, those like, that's just like what that's all I can think about. But then of course, Rip Mm -hmm. is in there. Like she's one of the greatest characters. I love Rip. You know, maybe you make an interesting point there that maybe it's not fair to think of her as just a final girl because she's very much like after Alien, which is more of an ensemble piece, she's very much the centerpiece of all the other movies. Yeah. Um, so she's really driving the action and she's really, she maybe has a lot more agency than a lot of characters do in these. In I don't this know, I think movie. Sid and Nancy, it's weird saying Sid and Nancy. I don't know why I've never noticed mm-hmm. that I'm saying it like that before, but um, Sydney and Nancy very similarly mm-hmm. do that too um man i don't know i don't I, know why i never consider her. i think it's well, just one of those things where it's like it's not until you start to break down film more mm-hmm. late like at least for me later in life i don't really break down film the way i do now for most of my life maybe mm-hmm. not most for you know for a while and i guess i never even though you can tell me now yeah it follows the slasher formula one kill at a time one killer that you know everyone's banding together to be concerned about and different people have different varying concerns it's blatantly a slasher but if you asked me a hundred times if alien's a slasher that has a final girl like the answer is no it's a science mm-hmm. fiction movie about a monster in space it just doesn't even occur to me even though now it's very obvious so maybe just my brain just like never makes that connection I well know. i think i think for me uh when i think of all the different franchises you know i think of friday the 13th what i think of is jason when i think of halloween aside from i mean laurie being my favorite character of all time of any film in the first movie when i think of halloween i think of michael myers right but when i think of when i think of the alien series i don't think of to be honest i don't even think of the xenomorph i think of ripley yeah, you think of Rick, you know for sure and i uh, right away i mean even from childhood when i you know alien 3 i didn't go see it for the xenomorph i went i saw it opening day because i wanted to see what ripley was going to do mm-hmm. yeah you know what i mean sure. and and i think that, that for me i've never really considered it like you know the quote-unquote final girl because to be honest i never felt like Ripley was the character that was kind of running away and having to fight back at the end. I, I always, I, I felt that Ripley was always the person that was always, she always had, uh, she always used her brain. She always, she always just completely right from the beginning. Like there was a lot of growth in the character, but right from the beginning, she was the one that was going to handle it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, 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 I didn't, yeah, I've, I've never considered her that. Mm-hmm. I know why I don't like, I can't put my finger on exactly why, but if you ask me like, 
a month ago, who's your favorite final girl? I wouldn't come up with Rip at all. But if you're like, mm-hmm. who's your favorite character of all time? I'd be like, oh my God, Ripley is. Is it right? <laughs> yeah. Is it partly just because Sigourney Weaver has gone on to have such a career that really, I mean, we probably best know her for Alien, but it also, she's been in so many, and we think of her as a, a more classical actress overall that maybe transcends just genre film. Is it that? I, I, don't, it... I don't know because, I mean, no. Jamie Lee Curtis in Trading Places, Fish Called yeah. Wanda. I mean, mm-hmm. so many movies that, I mean, I, I grew up just loving. I've loved her whole filmography. Mm-hmm. But I, I very much consider Laurie uh, not only the greatest character ever written, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. I mean... I, I also consider her very much a final girl in the best, in, in the most complimentary mm-hmm. way, you know? Yeah. And I think what I find about the character that I like so much is she's a lot more proactive than reactive overall. Yeah. I think maybe sometimes with final girls, they're kind of reacting to the horror around them. And they're just, I don't want to th- say they survive out of sheer luck, but sometimes it's just a numbers game. Sometimes they just happen not to be around um, the set over no, the, where all the action is going, where Ripley is very much always planning and she's not afraid to change her plan like she's the one that says well we'll continue to do what dallas does and when she realizes that's not a great idea she goes back to what lambert said and said you know what let's get the hell out of here. she's yeah. not afraid to admit when she's wrong and to course cor- yeah i do love her course correction excellent and there's also fewer people to shove into the shuttle once ash is gone so. right. <laughs> <laughs> all right where do we want to go from here folks i had made I some think- notes on the soundtrack and Lindsay, you have things on the use of sus- silence and suspense in here and like, really again, like... can, but don't have to. It was just, like, me throwing things in there. Okay. I, I think, I mean, that's that's cool. I also think, like, it's really important to address uh, the lasting legacy of Alien. Because, uh-huh. I mean, not just in uh, the franchise, but there are so many movies that are either directly or, you know, indirectly influenced by this one. I mean, mm-hmm. I took my kids I took my kids to see Underwater, uh, this, this oh, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think I saw that three or four times in the theater because it gave me that feeling of seeing Alien for the first time, you know? And I don't even mean that like it, it directly lifted from Alien, but it has that similar kind of feeling that like, and you know, I'm guilty as anyone that kind of discounted Kristen Stewart based on Twilight and I, I'm happily- Same and now I'm obsessed with her. I'm mm-hmm. 100% Dude, personal shopper. Just watch Adventureland. No, oh exactly. God. Yeah, exactly. I totally brushed her off and now I'm like- 10 and 10 obsessed with her yeah yeah like films like underwater or i mean even i mean I, there was an ongoing joke that like the year that life gyllenhaal like i was saying that i mean i like alien covenant a lot but life was so like like way, way better sequel to alien you know? what so i saw that <laughs> noted here about life and i was like whoa cannot wait to br- i life is everything that i want in a movie mm-hmm and I never, like, when I put on a movie, like, I'm going to watch it. Like, it has to be, there has to be, re- like, massive extenuating circumstances for me to turn a movie off. And like I could it. not make it through, like, the first 40 oh, minutes. Oh, man. I love that I, movie. Oh, my God. And I'm, like, when people were, like, when I hear people say that they loved it, I'm, like, oh, God, I got to give it another shot. And I'm, like, I can't do it. And, like, you're, like, oh, Lindsay, it's Jake Gyllenhaal in an mm-hmm. Alien-style movie. Like, it sounds like you read my diary and made that movie. And I put it on and I was like, I just feel nauseous. <laughs> like, I don't want to watch this. I don't want to watch a bunch of like head clunking dummies be like, oh no, it's in the vents. I was like, ugh, I can't watch this movie. <laughs> no. 
Yeah, who's like, great. I'm I'm so, and I say this, like, not every time I say this, it sounds very condescending, but it's not. I'm so glad that you like it. <laughs> like, no, 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 totally. I'm really I'm, happy I'm that about, you do. I am yeah. all about art being subjective. So it's like, totally it's cool. like what I feel about Mandy, which I think is one of the hardest movies in the world to get through. Like, I saw Mandy in a theater, and I will admit that if I watch it, like, at home on my couch alone, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much mm-hmm. as I did. I love that movie. I love I'm it. Sorry. Like, I loved it. I kept thanking it. Like, I was in the theater. I just kept, oh, my God, thank movie for existing because oh. it's so, no, so but, great. Like, what you're saying uh, about, like, life as, you know, you hear people say they like it, and you're like, maybe I should retry it, that kind of stuff. That's how I am with – and I'm not trying to upset anyone whatsoever, but that's how I've been with the Scream franchise. It Ugh. never did – and I know, I know. I'm not trying to. I'm not even trying to. Why talk are you to trying her. to hurt me? <laughs> I know. I'm just like, she's that, she's given movies. us two and a half hours of her time, right. and you're like, let me tell you all the things Ow, you're wrong about. Do you Lindsay. want your no, it's, knife it's, back? It's like it's like that. Like I I totally get why people love it, and that's so cool. But for some reason, it just never did anything for me. And, and I'm not even talking trash about it. You know, it's okay. Okay. <laughs> I just think that you were upset. Fine, I'm just need a couple of breaths. Yeah. Yeah. I think you were upset that David Arquette was a one-time WCW World Champion, and you're no. upset that the same belt that was worn by legends like Harley Race, Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat went to David Arquette. Dude, no, I love David Arquette. Like, I was bored. I was bored and stoned off my ass one day, and I like randomly tweeted him like, "Hey, do you want to talk about road racers?" And then like a day later, sure. like. A day later, like, he called me on the phone and we talked for, like, two hours about it. What? That is no, the told- coolest story. <laughs> I know, right? No, I love David Arquette. And I love I love Everson involved in that movie. But for some reason, I don't know. I just never did it for me. But Alien did. <laughs> well, okay. It's one of those movies that, like, everything that's come after it is like, oh, it's like Alien. But it's like you said, Jerry, set in water. It's Alien, but yeah. set in an amusement park. It's, yeah. you know, um, to me, like my favorite ripoff of Alien, and it's a ripoff, is Jason X. Um, oh, my God. It is yeah, the greatest. Definitely. I love that movie. It is like the greatest remake <sighs> of Alien. You can possibly I, that's one. I mean, we'll be even <laughs> after this. I don't get it. Like, I love movies that are so bad they're good mm-hmm. or whatever. But like Jason X Man just is not land for me. I like I watched it once and I was like, if this DVD breaks on the way out, it it's won't a- matter to me at all. See, that's <laughs> how I am with Jason Goes to Hell. It's I, like okay. I can throw that. I love Jason window. Goes to Hell. I, I love so Jason love Goes Jason. to Hell. Thank you. It might be. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, Adam Marcus's wife. I love Jason Goes to Hell. It's the one that I've watched the most times because it's like the one that like when I'm like, oh, what do I want to watch? You know what? I think I want to watch Hell. It's so um, much fun. It's such it. a fun movie. Yeah, Jason is a worm. Out oh beating. my God. Yeah, it's so it's good. It's so good. I love it. So, yeah. Duke Creighton. Oh. Oh, Hot God, dog Creighton, down a hallway. Duke, so. The whole, like, come yes. on. You get, whatever. I'm not going to, you know, I can talk about Jason Goes to Hell for a long time. I won't do Jason that. Jason is a worm. Jason is a worm. Jason is a worm. The Necronomicon shows up. Tell me that's not so dope. <laughs> Tell me you weren't like, yes, dude. Yes. Um, oh God, love it. But, um, yeah, actually, um, you guys are very, very learned film fans. So you probably know the answer to this. And I was thinking about it, um, as I was rewatching today, one of the things I find really like noticeable in alien is that we're so used to all these science fiction movies where everybody's like a scientist and an astronaut. Mm -hmm. They're these like esteemed elite fancy people who go to space and aliens so cool. Cause it's like blue collar workers. They're just like a Mm -hmm. truck. 
and I don't mean like just a truck, you know what I mean? Like they're a truck and it's so interesting and cool. And that's why I like, I think of moon is kind of something that followed up because he's just like a guy who works in space on like his job. And I was curious, like, do you, do you guys know, like other than moon, were there any before alien or any other after alien that you can think of that were just like regular Joe's? This is such a generic answer, but I think that like, Alien doesn't get made if Star Wars doesn't come out because I think Lucas okay. Lucas yeah. had done such an incredible job of building the science fiction fantasy world that really looks lived in. You have like the sand, just the gr- the the dirt of tattoo of Tatooine and yeah. Moss, the Moss Eisley Cantina. You obviously have like the Death Star and these huge star destroyers. Oh my god, what pristine. a great But example. my god, when you look at ta- you look at the Millennium Falcon and how everyone is like, what a hunk of junk this this the ship is. Like it ain't get it's not going to get us like 50 feet, never mind, you know, break the Kessel run in 12 parsecs. So I really think that that was maybe one of the first examples of what well, you could do in science fiction to make excellent it excellent answer. Also, also, I mean, even sticking to Dan O'Bannon's work. I mean, he was mm-hmm. really great at that. You get like films like Alien. You know, they're basically space mm-hmm. truckers. You get Blue Thunder, which I mean, it's about a basically a test pilot for cop helicopters, mm-hmm. working class. You get Return of the Living Dead, which I mean, your protagonists are like mm-hmm. basically what everyone looks mm-hmm. at as like scum. They're punk rockers. You get yeah. Life Force, which is basically another space trucker kind of Mm -hmm. movie you know what i mean like i think dan o'bannon was really good at taking the working class and making them the focal point of the stories Mm -hmm. which is great i mean i knew you guys would have good answers i think like to set a science fiction movie in that kind of scale and that kind of scope and to make it that lived in it really lucas kind of made a blueprint for it but after that one of the and jerry you mentioned this the way that alien constricts itself the way it goes from when you see the Nostromo, how large it is. I mean, the opening shot of Alien is very similar to the opening shot of Star Wars, where you see the Nostromo pass, and it yeah. just goes, and it goes, and it goes. And you see this structure that looks like these massive Gothic cathedrals that are built on top of this this spaceship that's as large as some countries overall. But then the movie gets much tighter. Like, once the chest-bursting scene, happen, scene happens, the Nostromo never feels that large anymore. And you get Dallas trapped in the air vents. You get and who he he's killed because he just simply can't get out of his own way. Lindsay, mm-hmm. you brought up um, Brett going after Jones, and mm-hmm. look, think of like that space hangar. How dirty it feels. How dusty yeah. it feels. Um, the, the ship all of a sudden it doesn't feel like this this giant structure anymore it feels like a, a tomb or a vice that's constricting on everybody yeah like i um i guess i probably could have mentioned this when i was thinking of inspirations but i really mm-hmm. like and i this is one of those words that i've never said out loud before and i'm gonna get it wrong uh robert heinlein heinlein Heinlein? yeah yeah is that what I, say? Um, I really like all of like I have a few of his short story books and I just like I don't know short stories are just easier to digest sometimes mm-hmm. so uh, I very much like them and even like as someone who's seen movies like Star Wars and Alien whatever even in these like very typical blue collar stories I still picture these like pristine space stations because like think about the appearance of the Nostromo to um Oh god, I don't know what the name of the ship is. In uh, two thousand one, 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Uh, Whatever. I don't remember. One of them is like you know they go to the space station and then their ship and it's like beautiful and white and bright and glowing and they are esteemed scientists and astronauts compared to like the filthy Nostromo, some truckers. They're sweaty a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. They've got pit stains. They're eating crappy looking yeah. food sloppily. Like that's dope. That's so They're different. Eating with their fingers. Yeah, like that's yeah. so different compared yeah. to like what other ones. Oh my gosh, I don't know why I didn't even think of Star Wars. It's such a I gotta example. tell you. And then I love your like. Oh my god, both of you guys had such great answers. John John Hurt <laughs> is tough to look at in this movie. Like yeah. there's something about him. Like I'm like, oh my god. Like I'm, I'm kind of like, oh. eats and he misses his mm-hmm. mouth and then he like. So he misses his mouth with his fork or spoon or whatever, mm-hmm. and then he picks it up with his hand and puts it mm-hmm. in his mouth, and you're just like, ugh. I mean, he looks 80 years old in this movie to start <laughs> with. He really just looks like there's been some hard living there. So, oh, man. All right. So I, oh. where else do we want? Are we good at this point? Is there anything I that think I'm good. Good. I think I so, think yeah. I feel yeah. like all the sound and the score stuff we kind of talked about we while talk talking about, about scenes. Yeah. So I feel okay. like we covered it. Also, so, really quickly, I would like to say that, what episode is this, Mike? As far 63. as how many... Out of 63, this, this is, is easily my favorite episode we've ever done. Yes. Wow. Far and away. Guys, because yeah. Alien is the best. Yeah. It really is. So it's, it's, it's just really lining up at this point. And it's yeah. not, it's it's so, I, I really, yeah, you're, Lindsay, are welcome on the show. If you want to oh take my, my spot, by all means. <laughs> I'm blushing. This is very nice. Um, this is really fun. So, Lindsay, where can uh, where can persons find your stuff right now? If yeah. they want to read more of your work, where can we find you? Yeah, the best place to catch up with me is on Twitter, uh, but good luck figuring it out. So, it's just Smash Travis, but it's spelled uh, E-S, so look for Smash Traves, if that helps mm-hmm. you at all. Um, and you will find me. Um, I write most often, I guess, for um, Daily Dead and Bloody Disgusting and a few of those places where my horror stuff lives, but I keep it pretty, I always post everything on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on something right now for Grimm Magazine, because print is not dead, Woo. Um, which is really exciting uh, and very different. Um, yeah, I talk mostly about horror, uh, crime movies very often. I'm on CG Mag, uh, Comics and Gaming Magazine online pretty often, talking about uh, crime and horror movies as well. Um, so if you're interested in any of that stuff, that is the best place to find me. Absolutely. Jerry, what do you have coming up for, uh, what do you have coming up? What are you working on right now? I have quite a few things actually, which I'm very excited to finally talk about. I know usually when we get to this side of the episodes, I'm usually like, oh, or whatever. But uh, uh, the most recent issue of Screen Magazine, I have a retrospective on my second favorite film of all time, The Exorcist 3. Uh, oh, you, can, dude. you can pick that up now. Uh, it is, other than Halloween, it is my favorite movie of all time. So there's that. I have quite a few things coming up on Dread Central. I either by the time this episode posts or a couple days after that, I have a really great interview with Rose McGowan coming out this week. Very cool. Uh, oh. We talked like I think it was supposed to be 15 minutes. We talked over an hour while she was walking around in the jungle, and I'm not <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Uh, I accidentally made her cry when I asked her about Wes Craven. It is it was one of the best chats I've ever had as far as doing that. I have oh. a really really personal article coming to Dread Central this week about uh, just my struggles with mental illness and how Mm -hmm. films like Starfish and Daniel Isn't Real have helped me deal with those. 
this coming week, I'm going to be on the Necronama.com podcast talking about Daniel Isn't Real, which is so awesome. Uh, yeah, just mostly that those things, reviews, interviews, that kind of stuff. So that Ooh, is cool. Please post that. I'm, I will. I am Very here cool. for Daniel Isn't Real content. It's oh, I love it. Excellent. It's so good. Jerry turned me yeah. on to that movie and it's such a brilliant look at bipolar disorder and schizoaffective disorder it's so good yeah i watched it it was literally like um the end of the decade so it was like december Mm -hmm. and i was putting together my like favorite horror movies of the decade and favorite horror movies of the year and all those lists for different places and i really like i hadn't seen it and it wasn't out yet so i like reached out to the pr and i was like listen i can't review it there's nothing I can, I can't write anything about it, but I'm putting together a list and I need to see your movie first. And she sent it to me and it like ended up on every list. <laughs> I was like, yes. That is great. No, yeah. Daniel, uh, uh, Adam Egypt Mortimer has been a, a friend for a few years and he's such a great guy. And I love to search him some kind of hate. And uh, I kind of accidentally got him thrown into the, the fire a, a couple or a few years back when uh, he, he coined this term death wave. Okay. And just as I kind of throwaway thing, and I wrote a I wrote a two piece article on it and interviewed tons of people in the film community about whether they think this is a thing or if it's just a label, and it backfired. It was for Plumhouse.com, and it ended up being like the article of that kind of like year that everyone hated. Oh no! They, they, they oh it was like I think 2015, 2016. Like I got death threats. Great. Over that. I, I think I was the one per. I, I didn't even know you at that time, and I was like the one person that defended that article. I went back and I'm like, I defended this. Good. It would have been awkward otherwise. But I was so happy that he came out with Desert Real because I think it is such an important film for anyone dealing with mental illness and Mm -hmm. suicidal ideation and so many things that Mm -hmm. I struggle with every day. So I'm so excited to talk about that film. Oh my gosh. I'm really looking forward to hearing your hearing and reading. Thank you. On the topic of mental illness, I have got an announcement to make. Yes. Um, so we just recorded our first show, but uh, I have a new podcast. It's going to be launching, I believe, in June. Um, I'm going to be working with uh, Jen Veratu from The Horror Virgin and Lara Unterstall from The Losers Club for uh, a new podcast called Psychoanalysis. Whoa! Um, yeah. We're going to be part of the Consequences of Sound Podcast Network, which is really exciting. Hell yeah. Whoa, Muggle Top, uh, congratulations. Like, That's so cool. Oh, congrats, man. So the idea behind it is we're going to examine horror movies through the scope of like mental health concerns which pretty much like i do two things i talk about three things i talk about horror movies mental health and punk rock and then i raise and act as a husband but those things are anyone can do that so who cares um really the kids really the kids raising yourself you know so, um but basically we're going to be posting shows every other week uh we're going to be covering different mental health topics whether it be trauma anxiety depression substancing all through the lens of mental health we've just recorded our first show this past week we're editing it now um the first show is about why so many people who have anxiety or suffer from trauma turn to horror movies and find real comfort in them and how it can help develop coping skills so i'm really excited by that um i just had psychoanalysis right yep called psychoanalysis um i just had a piece go up on shutters the bite about horror movies and mental health and how the two are related and i've got a bunch of other things i'm pitching i've really got that urge to start writing it so awesome um, awesome dude 
for our listeners, we have two contests right now. We are going to give away a couple things. Uh, so go over to Twitter. By the time this post, you'll be seeing links to two contests. We are going to give away, number one, a digital pass to the Chattanooga Film Fest, which is the t- May 22nd through the 20th. Whoa, that is a so, huge get. Yeah, Sorry, that that's awesome. going to be fun. There are so many good movies that are on demand. So we're going to purchase a pass and give that to one of our listeners. Uh, and we're also going to be giving away a copy of uh, Alien Vault, the making of Alien. So we'll have uh, those co- contests will be on Twitter. So if you're listening to it, head over to Pod and Pendulum. Give us a follow, and we'll pick random persons um, from the questions we pose overall. So as always, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Like this was a lot of fun for me to do. Um, this was an intimidating episode for me. Like, I think I went a little bit overboard in my notes, but so much. Um, it's just like how much this movie means to us. We want to make sure we got it right. I'm like, I told my wife, I'm like, I want this to be the best fucking episode on Alien that's ever been. God damn it. I think we did it. Yeah. So, I think we did it. So not to toot our own horns, but thanks very much, everyone. Everybody be safe. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and if you can stay home, stay home and listen to podcasts. Thank you very much. We're out. All right.